This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 215 of the program. Hope you guys are all having a fantastic week. Today is Friday, October 25th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us. And that includes Barry Scott, Barry, Benjamin Hare, D. Garcia, H. Ellis, Jeanette Boyahian, Jeffrey Hyde, Joanna Rosinska, Keith Desette, Lindsay Houston, Lookout, Paul Melblock, Stray, and Yasin Almadaki. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, we'll talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement of Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner's powerful point about who had the courage to take on the establishment in 2016, Hillary Clinton's smear of Tulsi Gabbard as a Russian asset, along with The View's reaction to said smear and Jill Stein's response. We'll talk about elitist Pete's collusion with data thief Mark Zuckerberg and Pete Buttigieg's response to AOC's criticism, Amy Klobuchar's fail argument against Medicare for All, a new poll that looks great for Bernie Sanders along with his commitment to defend whistleblowers as president, and how he'd act as organizer-in-chief to pass policies such as Medicare for All. And finally, we will close the week by talking to new challenger to one of the most corrupt members of Congress, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and her name is Jen Perlman, and she's going to lay out exactly how she will defeat Debbie Wasserman Schultz once and for all in 2020. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy it. Let's go ahead and get into it. On Saturday, Bernie Sanders held his Welcome Back Bernie rally in Queens, New York, and more than 25,000 people showed up to see Bernie Sanders take the stage with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Michael Moore and make their endorsements of him official. Now, I want to play a clip from AOC's speech. This is a relatively long clip. It's about six minutes. But she makes a really powerful case for Bernie Sanders, not just because he has the correct policy positions, but she really does a phenomenal job at putting this entire primary race, along with American politics in general, into perspective. And this is exactly what people need to hear. The reason why the Democratic Party primary is the way that it is, the reason why we're all talking about certain policies is because of one person, Bernie Sanders. This is what she had to say. Last February, I was working as a waitress in downtown Manhattan at a taqueria. I was on my feet working 12-hour days with no structured breaks. I didn't have health care. I wasn't being paid a living wage. And I didn't think that I deserved any of those things. Because that, because that is the script 
that we tell working people here and all over this country that your inherent worth and value as a human being is dependent on an income that another person decided to underpay us. It wasn't until I heard of a man by the name of Bernie Sanders that I began to question and assert and recognize my inherent value as a human being that deserves health care, housing, education, and a living wage. When I was growing up and education was being gutted for kids in the quote-unquote wrong zip code, Bernie Sanders fought for us. When I was a child that relied on CHIP so that I could see a doctor, Bernie Sanders fought for a single-payer health care system. When the federal government decided to discriminate and abandon my queer family and friends, Bernie Sanders was putting his career on the line for us. When I was a waitress and when it was time for me to graduate college with student debt, Bernie Sanders was the, one of the only ones that said no person should be graduating with life-crushing debt at the start of their lives. Bernie Sanders did not do these things because they were popular. And that's what we need to remember. He did these, this and he fought for these aims and these ends when they came at the highest political cost in America. No one wanted to question this system. And in 2016, he fundamentally changed politics in America. We right now have one of the best democratic presidential primary fields in a generation. And much of that is thanks to the work that Bernie Sanders has done in his entire life. United States Congress now. And that's a long, long way from being a sexually harassed waitress in downtown Manhattan one year ago. However, in this new historic freshman congressional class, an overwhelming amount of them now reject corporate PAC money. That's thanks to Bernie. An enormous amount of the House of Representatives endorse Medicare for all. That's thanks to Bernie. Now that I'm on that other side, I can tell you 
The halls of Congress are no joke. It is no joke to stand up to corporate power and established interests. It is no joke. It's not just about standing up and saying these things, but behind closed doors, your arm is twisted. The vice pressure of political pressure gets put on you. And every trick in the book, psychological and otherwise, is used to get us to abandon the working class. It is in, and it has been in that experience over the last nine months that I have grown to appreciate the enormous, consistent, and nonstop advocacy of Senator Bernie Sanders. The only reason that I had any hope in launching a long-shot campaign for Congress is because Bernie Sanders proved that you can run a grassroots campaign and win in an America where we almost thought it was impossible. That was absolutely phenomenal. And I've said this once, I'll say it again. We really need to appreciate the timing of this endorsement. Every single strategist in Washington, D.C., you know that they would have advised AOC or any other politician to not endorse Bernie Sanders, especially when he's in the hospital recovering from a heart attack. But the fact that she did it, the fact that she chose to be brave and endorse him at a time when this wasn't politically expedient, when, you know, there are tons of advisors in her ear telling her this isn't going to be good for your long-term career, you might as well just endorse Warren and try to have some leverage within the campaign. This really shows that AOC is the real deal. And she really talks about the effect that Bernie Sanders has had on everyone's life. He instilled in working people a sense of purpose, you know, that it doesn't have to be this way. Housing insecurity and living paycheck to paycheck, this isn't just a part of life. Things are this way because the system is designed to be this way. So she goes on to talk about how Bernie Sanders was on the right side of every single issue, LGBTQ rights, Medicare for all. And what she said um, was really remarkable. He fought for these things when this was a really high cost in America. Like fighting for LGBTQ rights when you are the mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the 1980s, that comes at a gigantic political cost. But Bernie Sanders did what was right and not what was politically expedient. And AOC lays it out. She also talks about how all of the 2020 Congressional candidates running for office now, part of Justice Democrats, brand new Congress. The reason why they're rejecting corporate PAC money is because of Bernie Sanders. A reason why most Democrats in the House of Representatives have co-sponsored Medicare for All, it's because of Bernie Sanders. She lays it out all perfectly clearly, and this was one of the most powerful speeches she's ever given, and perhaps the most substantial endorsement I've ever seen because everything is put into perspective here by AOC. The reason why we have a primary that's so robust, that's actually left wing and not right wing. The reason why it seems like the Overton window is shifting, at least with regard to Democratic Party politics, is because of Bernie Sanders. No one else. 
Now, another thing that I really appreciate is the insight that she gives us. You know, as a member of Congress behind closed doors, your arm is always twisted. Political pressure is constantly exerted on you. They use every trick in the book, psychological and otherwise, to try to get you to abandon the working class. Now, think about the fact that Bernie Sanders has been in Congress for decades, and he's resisted that. Almost every other person, in some way, shape, or form, has caved to special interests, has caved to pressure. But Bernie Sanders, for the most part, has resisted that for most of his career. That really is remarkable. To have that type of willpower shows me that he is the real deal. I mean, really, we may never get a candidate like this ever again until AOC runs for president. So we don't want to miss this opportunity. We don't know if she wants to run for president. But Bernie Sanders, we're all going to be looking back at this moment 30 years from now, and we will remember Bernie Sanders win or lose. We're going to think Bernie Sanders was the president who got us on the trajectory of social democracy, or alternatively, we could think Bernie Sanders is the one who got away. This really is a powerful moment in history. It's a turning point. Um, and the writing's on the wall. It says Bernie Sanders, and AOC lays that out, I think, explicitly clear and perfectly. So this was such a powerful speech, and even though I wasn't in attendance, I'm not in Queens, I'm, I'm on the other side of the country, you know, I was watching this online, and you could just feel the energy, it was electric, like, this is a real movement, this is real momentum, and we've all got to capitalize on it, we need to seize the moment, because we may never get a moment like this, or an opportunity like this, where we are in striking distance of real political power to institute change that would dramatically remake this country for the better. So AOC's speech here was remarkable. Now what I want to leave you with is Bernie Sanders' speech, because he's going to talk about AOC, and also give her credit, because she has done a remarkable job, at, you know, being in Congress not even a year, the way that she has impacted discourse and, you know, influenced the Democratic Party for the better, it really can't be understated. So here's what Bernie Sanders says about AOC. And let me thank Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It is, that's right. You know, I've been around politics a few years. And it is hard to believe the degree to which in less than one year, this woman, the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, it is hard to believe the degree to which she has transformed politics in America. Coming from a struggling family from Puerto Rico, she has been a fierce defender of the working class of our country. She has taken on the greed of Wall Street with legislation to put a cap on interest rates. She has been a leader in the fight against gentrification for rent control, for affordable housing,
and all within one year, she has electrified this country when she introduced the concept of the Green New Deal. Alexandria has become an inspiration to millions of young people, not just here in New York, but across this country, who now understand the importance of political participation and standing up for justice. Andrea, thank you so much. And I am so delighted that Alexandria is part of our campaign, and I look forward to traveling with her all over this country. So I've got one more clip that I want to share with you from the Bernie's Back rally that took place over the weekend in Queens, New York. This is a clip from part of Nina Turner's speech. Nina Turner, let me just say that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is incredibly lucky to have her as a surrogate because as far as surrogates go, she is the best of the best. Like, nobody gets me as fired up as Nina Turner. But what I want to share with you is a point that she made about Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren. What she says here is, I think, incredibly brilliant, and it's not necessarily like a new thought that I've had, but she just articulates it in a way that really resonates with me. It makes so much sense. So regarding 2016 and who decided to challenge the establishment, this is what she had to say. That there's nobody quite like Senator Bernard Sanders. I mean that. We got some folks in mainstream and the neoliberal side who really can't understand the difference. But I'm gonna break this down for you. There are many copies. There are people who didn't have the same guts and the same courage as Senator Bernie Sanders to run in 2016. who sat on the sideline when it was hard, there was only one person who stood up to the establishment and his name is Bernard Sanders. So if Elizabeth Warren saw that and saw that comment, you know, you'd have to think that she knows that that's essentially at her. This is what, you know, uh, Nina Turner was alluding to. She was indirectly criticizing Elizabeth Warren, and I can't help but think that this was Elizabeth Warren's face in the event she did see that. But that comment was so good, I have to read it again. There are many copies. There are people who didn't have the same guts and the same courage as Senator Bernie Sanders to run in 2016. There are some people who sat on the sidelines when it was hard. There was only one person who stood up to the establishment, and his name is Bernard Sanders. That is such an important point and it really goes to show you who was willing to speak truth to power who was willing to stand up and take a stand at a time when everyone else was falling in line like let's fast forward to circa 2014 2015 i was still in grad school and i remember you know debating with my colleagues about this just casually you know about 
the upcoming 2016 election. And I made it very clear that I was part of the draft Warren movement. You know, I supported that. I absolutely wanted Elizabeth Warren to run because I did not want to settle and vote for Hillary Clinton. Like, I, I felt like she was inevitable at that point, but I felt like we needed at least one voice to, even if, you know, she she's not successful, like Elizabeth Warren, to just jump in the race and push Hillary Clinton to the left at a minimum. And I remember seeing a video, I think it was an interview with HuffPost, where Mark Ruffalo, um, otherwise known as the Hulk, he passionately begged Elizabeth Warren to run for president. And Elizabeth Warren, you know, in spite of all the calls for her to run for president, in spite of celebrities like Mark Ruffalo asking her to run, she decided not to run. So Elizabeth Warren, she just decided to sit out the 2016 election and make an endorsement once the primary was essentially over. And she thought maybe that was the best way to um, have a little bit of say over a possible Hillary administration. But the fact is that Warren didn't run because that was something that was frowned upon. If you're in the Democratic Party, everyone was just in agreement that it was Hillary's turn. Bernie Sanders gave us an option. Elizabeth Warren, we would have been fine with her, but um, she didn't want to run. So Bernie stepped up reluctantly, I think. I don't believe he wanted to do that. I don't think he was ever career-minded. He wanted to run because he wanted to give people an option. And guess what? He catalyzed what may be the start of an actual political revolution. Bernie did that. So now that it's convenient, now that Hillary Clinton is out of the way and the field is wide open, now everyone wants to run for president, right? People who wouldn't run before. But guess what? Bernie Sanders didn't decide to run for president because, you know, it was uh, convenient in 2020. He decided to run because he knows that in order to win, in order to speak truth to power, in order to stand up to the establishment, we need someone with the guts. And there's one person who I truly believe is willing to speak truth to power in 2020. That's Bernie Sanders. No one has been as effective as Bernie in standing up to the establishment, in running against the Clinton machine on the left. And he did that. And I, I think people really need to understand that that was really important. Running in 2016 against Hillary Clinton was not something that was easy for him to do because you saw what happened. There were the smears against him. There were the attacks against his base of support. Like they drug him through the mud all at the behest of Hillary Clinton because he challenged her political hegemony within the Democratic Party. So, you know, you really have to remember, if you truly want a fighter, then opt for someone who's always willing to fight regardless of the political ramifications, regardless if it's not politically expedient to fight. So Nina Turner here in saying that, when I heard her say that, I just thought, thank you. Finally, somebody is saying it. Finally, somebody is actually stating what was the obvious, right? I mean, the fact that Elizabeth Warren is running now and she chose to step aside for Hillary Clinton, I think that says something about her character. Like, I'm committed to really supporting a candidate based on policy, but if we want to get those policies implemented, we need to determine who's the best fighter, who's going to be willing to fight, who has the capacity to fight and push through and persevere even if the establishment may come down upon you. It's not Elizabeth Warren. It's Bernie Sanders. And by, you know, talking about this, being brave enough to um, 
say this, say the obvious, Nina Turner is such a great surrogate because this this is what people need to be talking about. This should be on our minds as we evaluate who to vote for in the primary. But since we're on the subject of Bernie's welcome back rally, I'm not sure I think it was called the Bernie's back rally. I'm not sure. But either way, I want to leave you with one last clip. So this was Bernie Sanders' first rally post-heart attack. This is why it's called the Bernie's back rally. Um, what he says here had me super fired up. So I'm going to leave you with this. Um, enjoy. Let me also on a personal note, take this opportunity to thank the many people across this nation who in my time of illness sent me and my family their prayers and well wishes and their love. It has meant the world to Jane and me, and I thank all of you so very much. And along with the great medical care that I received, I am happy to report to you that I am more than ready with you the epic struggle that we face today. I am more than ready to assume the office of President of the United States. I am more than ready to take on the greed and corruption of the corporate elite and their apologists. I am more ready than ever to help create a government based on the principles of justice, economic justice, racial justice, social justice, and environmental justice. To put it bluntly, I am back. So I have effectively banned Hillary Clinton from my channel because, I mean, it's 2019 and I have a serious case of Hillary fatigue. She's not in power. Her politics are antiquated. She was defeated. I'm ready to move on, right? So whenever she is back in the news, I usually try to avoid talking about her. You know, when she falsely suggested that transgender people are some sort of new phenomenon, effectively erasing them from history, I bit my tongue, even though what she said there was disgusting. You know, when everyone was talking about her recently and the possibility of her jumping back in the 2020 race, I bit my tongue because, you know, I know what she's doing. She's just leaving these little hints of her possibly running, flirting with it, 
even though we know that that's not really going to happen, but she likes the mainstream media attention fawning over her. She loves the power and the admiration. So I don't want to be complicit. I don't want to be a useful idiot for Hillary Clinton and, you know, just allow her to continue to have this presence when, quite frankly, she's irrelevant. But anytime she does jump back into the news cycle, you know, it just reminds me once again how divisive and destructive she really is in American politics. So this is what she said this time, which has dominated headlines so much, like I almost, I, I can't ignore it because it's, it's that egregious, it's that harmful. This is what she said about Tulsi Gabbard. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. <laughs> She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian right. uh, asset. Richard. Obviously, she made a claim with zero evidence to back it up. She said Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset and um, the evidence, completely non-existent. And think about how absurd what she's saying is. So the implication is that Tulsi Gabbard uh, is going to run to be the presidential nominee in the Green Party if Jill Stein, in fact, you know, relinquishes power. Except there's two things wrong with that assertion, or that implication, rather. First of all, Tulsi Gabbard has already ruled out running for president under the banner of a third party. Second of all, Jill Stein isn't even running. So this is so far removed from reality that Hillary Clinton should be embarrassed. She should no longer be taken seriously whenever she has anything to say about politics. I mean, we should have written her off permanently after she lost to Donald Trump. She lost to the host of a reality television show. So we should have then just written her off and realized that this is someone who is politically incompetent, who we should not take seriously. But the media loves Hillary Clinton. She has a lot of people who adore her and worship her, a lot of Democratic Party loyalists who like her in the media. But normal Americans, they don't, they don't really see that. They view her as the establishment, and rightfully so, because she really is the embodiment of everything wrong with the Democratic Party and establishment party politics. And I think that Tulsi Gabbard, in a response, highlighted this. So Tulsi Gabbard said on Twitter, Great, thank you, Hillary Clinton. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine. Afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. Now look, I have my disagreements and criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard. I don't support Tulsi Gabbard. The minute she moved away from Medicare for All, um, that's when I realized, okay, I, I don't have any interest in your campaign. That being said, um, a smear is a smear. And what Hillary Clinton did to Tulsi Gabbard is a smear, so she has absolutely every right to call it out. She's right. Hillary Clinton is the queen of corruption. And she's a warmonger. Hillary Clinton 
is not just a bad politician, she's a bad person, right? She's an angry, narcissistic oligarch who just can't accept the fact that Americans aren't into her and she lost to someone as idiotic and moronic and buffoonish and childish as Donald Trump. I get it, I'd be salty too, I'd be bitter too if I lost to Donald Trump. But there are more fruitful ways to deal with that loss. And jumping back in to talk about politics in this divisive and destructive manner is not okay. So, what Tulsi Gabbard said here, I don't think Hillary Clinton wants to run again. Don't encourage her to run again, for the love of God. I think, essentially, what Tulsi Gabbard is trying to communicate to everyone is that Hillary Clinton is the embodiment of the establishment, and the establishment collectively is against Tulsi Gabbard. Therefore, you know, she's kind of using Hillary Clinton as a synonym for the establishment, and that makes sense. And there's also a criticism here. You know, you could say that I wish... Tulsi Gabbard attributed this same line of attack to someone like Joe Biden, who is her primary opponent, who's also a corrupt warmonger. However, you know, it's still for her to defend herself here. I think this is important. She came with a really strong response. And this attack is better for Tulsi Gabbard than it is for Hillary Clinton. Like Hillary Clinton, she doesn't like Tulsi Gabbard, but by her criticizing Tulsi Gabbard in this intellectually lazy, hacky way, this just helps Tulsi Gabbard. Now people are rallying around Tulsi Gabbard. Someone like me who has lost interest in Tulsi Gabbard throughout the course of this primary, I'm forced to defend her because this smear is so egregious. Now, additionally, Tulsi Gabbard released a video detailing, you know, how she believes the smears against her in the mainstream media. This really all kind of leads back to Hillary Clinton. She's the lowest common denominator, and anyone who's in the mainstream news who constantly says that she is, you know, um, a Putin apologist or a Assad apologist, you know, it's all because people are still bitter that she didn't endorse Hillary Clinton in 2016. Take a look. People warned me in 2016 that my endorsement of Bernie Sanders would be the end of my quote-unquote political career. They said Clinton will never forget that she and her rich and powerful friends, her allies in politics and in the media will make sure that you are destroyed. Well, there have been countless hit pieces full of smears against me from day one of this campaign. They've tried to destroy my reputation and my lifetime of service because I stood up to them. I've spent over 16 years of my life proudly serving in the Army National Guard. I still serve as a major today. I volunteered to deploy to the Middle East twice. I've served in Congress now for nearly seven years, serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, and I am not afraid to openly express my love for our country. But if they can falsely portray me as a traitor, then they can do it to anyone. And in fact, that's exactly the message that they want to get across to you. That if you stand up against Hillary and the party power brokers, if you stand up to the rich and powerful elite and the war machine, they will destroy you and discredit your message. But here is the truth. They will not intimidate us. They will not silence us. We are not here just to protest their corruption. I am running for president to take the Democratic Party and our country back from the corrupt elite. I'm running for president to bring about a new Democratic Party and new leadership that will fight for peace, fight for the people, and protect our planet. So what she's saying here is really interesting. It kind of um, legitimizes our worst concerns with the establishment. She says that she was warned about what would happen if she crossed the Clinton machine. She is smeared relentlessly. If you didn't fall in line and endorse Hillary Clinton in 2016, 
uh, and you chose to endorse Bernie instead, we will relentlessly smear you. And she's kind of proven right here. I mean, it's not just her. Back in 2017, when Keith Ellison was running to be the DNC chair, they were essentially saying that he was an anti-Semite. Now, of course, that's absurd. They tried to tie him to Louis Farrakhan and whatnot, but Keith Ellison endorsed Bernie Sanders, so he was also smeared. So the way that I see this is I remember all of the people who endorsed Bernie in 2016. They hold a special place in my heart, right? You know, Raul Grijalva, even though he's with Warren this time, uh, Keith Ellison, Tulsi Gabbard, they all endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016, and that meant something to me. So I remember what they did. That was meaningful. So if I remember them endorsing Bernie, of course, people on the opposite side of the aisle are going to remember her endorsing Bernie, but they're going to view her negatively and maybe never forget about that and always hold a grudge against Tulsi Gabbard because of that. But at the end of the day, this is a smear, this is egregious, and we have to call this out. And another issue with this is that, you know, not all criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard are smears. There are legitimate and important policy-based criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard that I think need to be addressed. But but smearing her as a Russian asset, I mean, this just makes people question the legitimacy of good faith critiques that come from the left. So it's frustrating that, you know, at a time when we're trying to move past Hillary Clinton and talk about policy and really focus on the substance, she just jumps back in and gets everyone sidetracked and distracted. And it's just, it's so frustrating. Like, I'm so over it. I'm so over Hillary Clinton. Now, She's also hypocritical, and I think that Van Jones on CNN did a good job at kind of pointing out how, like, if you're worried about a Russian disinformation campaign, if you're worried about disinformation, more generally speaking, don't participate in the spread of disinformation yourself. She's playing a very dangerous game. <clears throat> I mean, Hillary Clinton, uh, if you're concerned about disinformation, if you're concerned what the Russians do is they, dis they spread disinformation, they get us divided against each other, that is what just happened. Just throw out some information disinformation, smear somebody. She is Hillary Clinton. She's a legend. She is, she's going to be in the history books. She's a former nominee of our party. And she just came out against a sitting U.S. congresswoman, a decorated war veteran, and somebody who's running for the nomination of our party with just a complete smear and no facts. I, I, she called her a Russian <clears throat> asset as a fact. And as you point out, sitting U.S. congresswoman. A, a sitting U.S. congresswoman. Now, mm -hmm. this is not this is a very very dangerous game and there's a backstory here and there's two sides to every story let's not forget tulsi gabbard was picked out by the democratic party establishment and put at the top of the dnc they thought she was going to be their golden girl and she got in in that position in the dnc and she looked around she saw debbie wasserman schultz and other people clinton allies doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing in the primary and he yeah. and, and tulsi publicly quit and then yeah. endorsed bernie sanders and it's been payback hell ever and that's since. what we are here so he also kind of said what, you know, I was thinking with regard to the endorsement. This is payback because she endorsed Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. I mean, look, it's not conspiratorial to say that, that Hillary Clinton is holding a grudge against Tulsi Gabbard. The way that politics works is you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You endorse me in this race, I'll, you know, endorse you later on. Uh, I fundraise for you. Maybe you endorse me in this race. This is exactly how it works. This is the swamp, for lack of a better word. This is the way that it works. So Tulsi Gabbard, she was kind of the DNC's golden child. She was part of the DNC, but she went against the grain, and they will never let her live that down. They will always criticize her for this. And this is what the establishment does. They look out for their own, and they attack anyone who gets out of line, who strays from the flock.
So, you know, I absolutely commend Tulsi Gabbard for speaking out here and really challenging the Clintons in a way that few politicians have. You know, this is necessary. People need to stop propping up Hillary Clinton in the media, but they will never learn their lesson. What she says holds weight, and that's just the fact of reality. I don't like that, but what she says is important to a lot of people, you know, so for her to say this, to lob this smear against Tulsi Gabbard that's completely unsubstantiated, not only is it disgusting from a moral standpoint because she is slandering Tulsi Gabbard, but it's also harmful and destructive. We're supposed to be committed to facts and statistics and data. But for you to just willy-nilly throw out something that is really an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence. So, for the love of God, I just wish Hillary Clinton would go away. But, I mean, <laughs> I can't see that happening because whenever she says something, it dominates the headlines. And I'm part of the problem for talking about her still, but I mean, I feel like you can't not defend Tulsi Gabbard if this loathsome of a smear is lobbed against her. It's so disgusting, right? Even if this was lobbed against someone who I truly don't like, like Pete Buttigieg, I would have to defend him. Like, when Jacob Wool fabricated sexual assault allegations against Pete Buttigieg, even though I dislike him, I still defend him. This is about having integrity. This is about defending people and making sure that when we critique them, we have a policy foundation behind our criticism. But for this, this is low. This is disgusting. I mean, this is nothing more than gutter politics, and Hillary Clinton should be ashamed of herself for, uh, you know, saying this about Tulsi Gabbard, but whatever she says, people just love. She surrounds herself by yes men and yes women, and there's still a lot of those same loyalists in media who praise her whenever she says something. I mean, on The View, I'll be talking about a segment where they uh, all agreed with Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, what she says matters, regardless if we like her or not. So she needs to be more responsible. The fact that she's not shows that she doesn't care about the country. She just, you know, she cares about herself. So I want to share a clip that I saw from The View where they talk about Hillary Clinton's smear of Tulsi Gabbard. So as you all know, Hillary Clinton called Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset. And um, I want to talk about this because it really demonstrates the importance of people in power, people who are well-known, people with platforms, of getting things right, of sticking to the facts, right? Because you can easily spread misinformation, either knowingly or unknowingly, just by saying something. And even if it's an off-the-cuff remark, people will take what you say and they will run with it if they respect you. Because politics in America is very personality-driven. People like to rally around people as if they're cult leaders. And Hillary Clinton, there's absolutely a cult of personality that has all, you know, coalesced around her. And a lot of them exist within the mainstream media. So if Hillary Clinton says something, it's going to hold weight, like it or not. So in this clip here, they're going to talk about Hillary Clinton and they're going to evaluate whether or not her smear of Tulsi Gabbard is uh, legitimate. And this is incredibly troubling, and it demonstrates why people need to be more responsible if they are well-known. I mean, for me, honestly, you know, I mean, Hillary's been dead on with so many things. She told us about Russia. She told us about the probable interference during the debate. She was Secretary of State. She has deep knowledge about world issues. I, I thought, where's the lie? You know, I've often said that Tulsi... Um, is sort of the Trojan horse in this. I mean, she's polling only at 1.2%, um, yet she's still in the race. You have her uh, being touted by people like Fox, um, Fox News personalities like um, Tucker Carlson. She's she endorsed. is the 
She's endorsed by, you know, by sort of the Russians. David Duke. David, well, David Duke. She, she has, she has basically re renounced yeah. that, but she's never renounced the, the Russian support. There have been about 20 Russian bot <coughs> websites that have supported her mm -hmm. since she's announced her, her run for the presidency. She I mean, tweeted back and called Hillary a warmonger. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that does not do anything for me. She hasn't denied it. She hasn't said anything in her tweets. How dare you? That's outrageous. Of course I'm not. She didn't say that. Mm -hmm. no. She's just going after Hillary. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Hillary was right about almost everything. <coughs> She's been exonerated with that nonsense that they pulled about her, her server already. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, and this idea that she, she's doing this to get back in the race, that she said that also, uh, Tulsi. I don't buy that either. I don't think Hillary wants to, wants to go through it again. So I, I think that there's something, I don't say that Tulsi is an agent. I just think that she could be a useful idiot the way Trump is a useful idiot to the Russians. Yeah. That they see, they see something. They say, oh, look, a useful idiot. Let's play this. Mm -hmm. And another point, they, the Republican Party knows that they cannot win without interference from Russia and maybe a voter suppression. They cannot win. Yeah. People in this country are against him now. And so they have to have it. And she's a perfect person to she's throw right in the foil. middle of this. She's a perfect foil. I don't think that she wants to be, maybe. I don't know. She's coming here in a couple of weeks. So we can See, ask I read her. this completely differently. Mm. I think for Hillary Clinton, one, she sounded like she had still an axe to grind in 2016. But if you have played the political game for so many years, how can you be this clueless? Because she, in those comments, saying that Tulsi Gabbard's being groomed by the Russians, it makes her sound complicit with the Russians. It does. But it gives the Russians exactly what they want. They want the Democratic Party to be divided, right? If they like Tulsi Gabbard, they want more people to know Tulsi Gabbard. And so she was only promoted because of this. It really surprised me that Hillary Clinton was a smarter, more tactful in the way she talked about it. And frankly, if you're a Democrat, I think Tulsi has a lot to like. I think if anything, you no should Democrat want... No Democrat really likes her. That's why she's polling at 1.2%. I think she adds something unique to the party. What the Democrats, in my opinion, what I think they're missing is where a lot of the middle of this country is. And I think she's an isolationist. You know, Some people like that. She doesn't like wars. She's attracting people that I think you need that might vote for Trump. She's only that would attracting 1.2 percent. Look at when Jill well, Stein, when Jill Stein did it, and she's claiming that Jill Stein was a Russian asset in the last election. We didn't know it until after the election. Now we're looking at this with open eyes. Maybe we know it before. So that's a good. Well, she made a word it, to the wise is sufficient. Tulsi Gabbard may now go straight to the convention, and it, the same mm -hmm. thing is, could happen again. Well, she's I just think Hillary Clinton be a little bit smarter. Yeah. If you if you are going to throw stones from the sidelines, which I hate politicians, if you're not in the race, then be a little more tactful about it when you speak, because you're only hurting your own party I, I by love doing that. So that was very troubling, and let me just say this: as someone with a very large platform myself, I have a quarter million subscribers now on our YouTube channel. Um, it's almost terrifying to think about. How easily I, if I don't get something right, if I am not, you know, really fact-checking myself and being incredibly rigorous with my research, I can mislead someone. And someone can just take what I said, run with it, and not think twice because they view me as a trustworthy source. That's troubling. Like, what we should be doing is, as leaders in any way, shape, or form, not that I'm a leader, but as political leaders, as people in media, we need to not just tell people what to think like we need to tell people how to think
So use my statements, use the conclusions that I reach and how I get there, the mechanisms that drive me to that conclusion based on evidence and research and logic. Use that to come to your own conclusions. That's really what I think a responsible person in a position of power or influence would do. Hillary Clinton has no regard for that responsibility, none whatsoever. And uh, this is the consequence. She influences people on The View who respect her, and then they in turn spread her misinformation and people who respect them and are fans of them believe that and then now we're just like we're perpetuating the fake news that uh we all complain about that donald trump complains about so sonny hostin someone who generally i like the most on the view said that hillary's been dead on with so many things she was secretary of state she has deep knowledge of world issues so this is why hillary clinton she's being incredibly reckless here she is someone of immense power and influence. For her to just say something willy-nilly with no evidence to back it up, this is the result. You are spreading misinformation and you are slandering a member of Congress, presumably because you're butthurt that she didn't endorse you in 2016. Sonny also, uh, since she accepted the conclusion from Hillary Clinton that Tulsi Gabbard is in fact a Russian asset, began to rationalize it, right? Because the thing about these types of theories, we'll call this a conspiracy theory because I think that's what it is, is that once you accept that that conspiracy theory is valid, pretty much everything else in your mind points directly back to that conspiracy theory. So she starts bringing up these reasons why maybe it's true that Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset. She cites how she's pulling at 1%, but yet she's still in the race. Now, the thing with most conspiracy theories is you just have to think through them a little bit and you'll realize how stupid they are. Like with a flat earth theory about how, you know, uh, NASA is trying to stop people from believing that the world is in fact spherical. Well, you just have to ask why? Why do they have to make us believe that the earth is flat, right? The conspiracy theory kind of falls apart because there's no motive there. there there's, there's just, once you apply the most minimum amount of logic to it, it falls apart. And in this instance, Tulsi Gabbard's pulling at 1%, yet she's still in the race. Um, and guess who else is pulling at 1%? Pretty much everyone but Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, and Andrew Yang. Michael Bennett. John Delaney, all polling at or less than 1%, but yet they're not Russian assets. There's nothing suspicious there. It's only Tulsi Gabbard because Sonny Hostin has already bought into the premise that she's a Russian asset. So anything that seems a little bit off is just more evidence that she is, in fact, a Russian asset. Now, on top of that, she brings up how she goes on Fox News, and, you know, um, that's problematic. Even if I feel very uncomfortable with Tulsi Gabbard going on Tucker Carlson show regularly because he's a white supremacist. How is that evidence that she is, you know, a Russian Trojan horse or whatever? And also, since she never directly renounced the Russian support that she's getting, you know, there are numerous websites that are Russian troll sites, apparently supporting Tulsi Gabbard. You know, that's just more evidence that she is a Russian asset. Except, do you honestly believe that these troll organizations, one by one, however many exist, need to be renounced for her to prove a negative that she's not a Russian asset? I mean, do you understand why this is so troubling? People believe what Hillary Clinton says, and now everything else points back 
to Tulsi Gabbard being a Russian asset. Any behavior that they don't like or that they can't explain, you can draw a direct line between that and the fact, according to them, fact that she's a Russian asset. And it's incredibly troubling. This is exactly why you have to be responsible if you are in a position of power or influence. Hillary is not. Now, Joy Behar said that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard tweeted back and called Hillary Clinton a warmonger, so that does not do anything for me. And also, she hasn't explicitly denied it. So, you know, since she's only choosing to go after Hillary Clinton and not necessarily address the merits of the claim that she's a Russian asset, that must be further proof that Tulsi Gabbard is, in fact, a Russian asset. Except, if you're being attacked by someone personally, it's only reasonable to just have a human response and hit him back. And that's what Tulsi Gabbard did. So she called Hillary Clinton a warmonger. And I don't know if that doesn't do anything for you, um, but it's true. It doesn't matter if you don't like that she called uh, Hillary Clinton a warmonger, rather. But it's true. Hillary Clinton is a warmonger. She is the embodiment of corruption. She is the establishment. People don't like Hillary Clinton. Because Joy Behar is an elite and she has a different perspective, you know, that type of criticism that Tulsi Gabbard lobbed back at Hillary, it's not going to resonate with her, but that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily true. And, you know, because she's going after Hillary Clinton, that's not further evidence that she's a Russian asset or a useful idiot to the Russian government. She's just doing what people do when they're backed into a corner. Bite back. That's that's human. That's reasonable. But again, when you start to buy in to a conspiracy theory, any and everything is more evidence that your conspiracy theory is correct. On top of that, Joy Behar says the Republican Party know that they cannot win without interference from Russia and voter suppression. So on one hand, she is correct that voter suppression is something that the Republican Party has to utilize in order to make them more electorally viable. But in terms of them thinking that they need Russia to help them, I mean... This is really removed from reality. Think about one of the main reasons why Hillary Clinton lost. Because there were many districts, namely in the Rust Belt, that flipped from Obama to Trump because they felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. Now, if you say, I believe that Russian interference was part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost, that's fine. I would disagree and think it was based on her being out of touch, her not running a good campaign. However, if you think that the only reason why Republicans win and Hillary lost is because of Russian interference, it just shows that you're not really paying attention. You don't have your finger on the pulse. The Democratic Party, any electoral victory will entirely hinge on how effective they are at getting out the votes, getting people excited, galvanized, registered to vote. Hillary didn't do that. In fact, in 2015, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, at the behest of Hillary Clinton, chose to forego the usual get-out-the-vote campaign that the DNC always does in election cycles because she was worried that if there were too many new voters, they might vote for Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton. So they delayed the get-out-the-vote campaign until the general election. And at that point, you know, it was too late. They didn't get out the vote. They didn't excite non-voters. They didn't excite people to turn out. And whenever turnout is low, guess what? Republicans win. Republicans win. So they're going to do voter suppression. They're going to try to use their institutional advantages to make sure that they defeat Democrats. But in every single election, if we don't get out enough voters, we lose. People on the left, the Democratic Party, will lose if we don't do that. We have to acknowledge this, okay? We can't keep 
saying that Russia is exclusively responsible for Hillary Clinton's defeat. We can't say that it was James Comey's letter at the last minute that made Hillary Clinton lose. There's all these types of justifications for why she lost, but, you know, Hillary Clinton and anyone who is a loyalist to Hillary Clinton, they just can't acknowledge that maybe it wasn't all of these external factors. Perhaps you think that they played a role, and that's fine. But if you don't accept the reality that this loss was on Hillary Clinton and the DNC's back and their their failure to mobilize enough voters, then I don't know what to say. So getting back to my original point, this is why we need people in power to acknowledge the tremendous amount of influence that they have. And I want them to be, you know, some somewhat responsive at least to that. Acknowledge the responsibility to not spread misinformation to not just say something if you don't have the evidence to back it up if you're going to make that big of a logical leap you've got to have a bevy of evidence to fuel that leap hillary didn't have it and now we're seeing the consequence we're seeing how this impacts political discourse in a really negative way and it's just unfortunate because we were already divided enough in america and then you have hillary clinton thrown back into the mix to say this for who knows why and um this is what's happening it's it's just it's demoralizing to say the least when hillary clinton smeared tulsi gabbard she also lumped jill stein in with that attack now um jill stein recently appeared on cnn and she had what i think is a brilliant response to this because even if you don't trust Jill Stein and you're worried about Russia propping up some sort of Manchurian candidate, Jill Stein has a response that addresses your worries. Um, it's just a matter of, will you actually take what she says seriously and fight for a solution to this problem? This is what she had to say. Dr. Stein, I went to Miriam Webster, looked up asset just to be sure. Here's what it says. Something useful in an effort to foil or defeat an enemy such as a piece of military equipment or a spy. Are you a Russian spy? <laughs> no, I am not a Russian spy. I think this is a completely unhinged conspiracy theory for which there is absolutely no basis in fact, not for myself and not for Tulsi Gabbard. I think it's, it's really outrageous that Hillary Clinton is trying to promote this crazy idea. You know, you can't just slander people. You have to present some basis in fact. Uh, Hill, uh, Tulsi has said that she is dedicated to running as a Green, as a uh, Democrat, and she has been for her whole life, so that's pretty believable. I am not running for office. Somehow Hillary Clinton didn't do her, her Google research, or she would know that I am not running. Uh, so it's preposterous to say if I will give it up. Um, you know, this is just a, it's a wild and insulting theory, and I think it speaks to Hillary's need to try to explain, perhaps to herself, you know, why her campaign was not successful. People really wanted change and unfortunately believed Donald Trump's lies that he was going to bring change. We need a voting system, you know, in which people can actually vote for what they want. And if people are concerned that uh, independent candidates and campaigns are Russian plots, there's a very simple solution. Ranked choice voting prevents any evil foreign asset or anyone from splitting the vote. It lets you rank your choices. You never have to worry about your vote being 
quote thrown away or your, um, uh, your vote not counting or spoiling the election. It doesn't happen under ranked choice voting. If your first choice loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. It's a win-win. And, you know, that's the solution here. The solution is not to silence political dissent. You know, the basis of our democracy is supposed to be political dialogue and competition. We shouldn't be in the business of, of um, you know, throwing uh, just terrible accusations and calling tyranny and, and traitor uh, for people who are standing up for very important values that the American people badly need to hear about. You know, 70% in a recent Wall Street Journal poll, 70% of Americans said they're not just fed up, they are fighting angry with a political establishment that's thrown them under the bus. So we shouldn't be in the business of silencing uh, diverse political choices. We need ranked choice voting to make that okay and bring our values back into our vote. So first of all, she denounces Hillary Clinton's attack. She calls it an unhinged conspiracy theory. And she points out the obvious that Tulsi Gabbard has already ruled out that she's not going to be running in a third party. Um, furthermore, Jill Stein isn't running for president in 2020. She's not running for office in 2020. So for Hillary Clinton to say that, I mean, there is truly no basis in reality for that criticism. There's zero link between Tulsi Gabbard and Vladimir Putin. Zero. I mean, the only thing that they have to go on is that Tulsi Gabbard is against regime change war in Syria and Bashar al-Assad is an ally with uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. But that's it. That is a connection that isn't even tenuous. It's non-existent. I am against regime change war in Syria. So you can't just say that she's a Russian asset based on her view on geopolitics in the Middle East, that doesn't even make any sense. It's a conspiracy theory. So Jill Stein is right to call that out. There's absolutely no merit there. However, when it comes to Jill Stein, a lot of people in the Democratic Party are incredibly skeptical of her because of that now infamous 2015 photo when she appeared at a dinner that included Vladimir Putin. Now, she explained that this was a conference RT invited her to and that she paid for her own trip. And, you know, of course, she never concocted some type of malicious scheme with Vladimir Putin to quote-unquote steal the election from Hillary Clinton. But the reason why I think that Jill Stein's response in this interview is so brilliant is because it accounts for people's skepticism. Like, if you don't trust Jill Stein, she's still nonetheless offering you a solution. Now, look, I understand, like, to be fair, that the optics of that photo are bad, right? If it were me and I were in Jill Stein's position and I showed up to that dinner and Vladimir Putin was there, I would have left in protest, right, to make a statement about human rights. That was around the time when Russia had just passed their, uh, what was it, like a gay propaganda law, which essentially banned advocacy for LGBTQ rights, so I would have left in protest. However, to be fair to Jill Stein, the reason why she attended that, knowing that there would be some pretty awful people there, is because she wanted to be a voice that would speak truth to power, that would actually be able to stand up for human rights, but I mean, regardless. If people are concerned, there's a very simple solution. Ranked choice voting. If you are worried that a third party candidate is going to run deliberately at the behest of Vladimir Putin to prop up whatever candidate the Russian government is supporting, if that's really your concern, this is the solution. 
join me in advocating for ranked choice voting. But the problem is that a lot of people, they worry about third-party spoilers and whatnot, but they never talk about ranked choice voting, and it's incredibly frustrating to me. I have advocated for ranked choice voting now for years on this program. Nobody, even the people who are the most vocal about, you know, Jill Stein and whatever impact she had in the 2016 election, they never mention ranked choice voting. Members in the Democratic Party who are the loudest in saying that, you know, Jill Stein spoiled the election and handed it over to Donald Trump, even if Gary Johnson took more votes away from Donald Trump, mind you, they never say anything about this. And there's a bill in Congress that was introduced by Donald Beyer. This is H.R. 4000, and it would institute nationwide ranked choice voting. But can you guess how many co-sponsors it has? It has five co-sponsors. That's it. So everyone is worried about, you know, a Manchurian candidate. We're worried about third-party candidates. Not very many people are advocating for ranked choice voting. Rokana co-sponsored that bill. Jamie Raskin co-sponsored that bill. But this was formerly H.R. 3057 back in the 2017 to 2018 congressional session. Can you guess how many co-sponsors it had back then? Once again, five. Five. Now, at a town hall, I showed up and I asked my representative if she'd actually co-sponsored this legislation. She said she'd look into it. Guess what? She never did. So everyone is super concerned about, you know, third-party candidates potentially spoiling the election, third-party candidates potentially being Manchurian candidates running at the behest of Vladimir Putin, propped up by the Kremlin, but nobody wants to actually opt for meaningful yet easy electoral reform. I mean, the thing about ranked choice voting is this opens the door to third parties and fourth parties actually becoming electorally viable because there are, make no mistake about it, dozens of parties that exist in the United States. It's just a matter of whether or not they're viable. But here's the thing. The reason why Democrats and Republicans don't support ranked choice voting is because this is a direct threat to their power. If you start opening the door to a more fair electoral process, and you allow members of the Green Party and potentially the Libertarian Party or some other parties to start getting elected, then of course that threatens your power status. So they want to complain about third-party candidates, but at the same time, they don't want a solution to stop vote splitting. Okay, well then you can't complain. You see what the Democratic Party likes to do is they like to voter shame people, right? If you don't fall in line and support whoever corporatists we nominate, then we're just going to voter shame you. Rather than opting for a true solution that would ameliorate all of our concerns, we're just going to beat you over the head and tell you to fall in line. You have to change, not us. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. When it comes to elections, these are winner-take-all. This is a zero-sum game. There's going to be one winner and one loser. So that means that you have to make a decision. Either you support the person who you think has the best chance of winning, or you vote sincerely for the person who you genuinely believe in. Now look, in 2016, I voted for Jill Stein. Proudly so. But I am in the state of Oregon. So as much as I hate the electoral college, I still use it to my advantage in a safe blue state to vote for someone who I sincerely believe in. Now, if I were in a swing state or if Oregon looked like it was going to go to Donald Trump, of course, I would vote for Hillary Clinton in order to prevent Donald Trump because defeating Donald Trump was a greater priority to me than voting sincerely for a Green Party candidate. But I mean, none of this would even matter if we just had ranked choice voting. So the fact that Jill Stein brought that up is, I think, brilliant because even if you hate Jill Stein or you hate anyone who runs in third party, 
You can advocate for ranked choice voting, and whatever fear you have about third parties would be wiped away. But nobody talks about ranked choice voting. So um, it's incredibly frustrating that we continue to, you know, look down upon third parties, even if we live in a two-party system and Duverger's law is still something that is active. I mean, third parties, they're part of democracy, regardless if you like it or not. They're going to exist. They've always existed and they will continue to exist. It's just a matter of are we going to maybe open the door to allowing them to win by loosening that stranglehold that, you know, our majoritarian winner-take-all single-member district plurality system has? Or are we going to just, you know, keep complaining and beating people over the heads if they don't fall in line? You know, I think the answer is clear. But look, if you care about democracy and you don't want a Manjurian candidate, you know, whatever potential a spoiler to emerge, advocate for ranked choice voting. You can advocate to get that on the ballot in your state. You can call your representative and tell him or her to co-sponsor HR 4000. Either way, if you're not talking about ranked choice voting, then I don't take you seriously if you truly are concerned about, you know, a Manchurian candidate, because we can stop that. We can stop that with ranked choice voting. Period. End of story. It seems like all of those private fundraisers that Pete Buttigieg has been holding in the Hamptons is really finally starting to pay off because nobody has more billionaire donors than elitist Pete. In fact, one billionaire loves Pete Buttigieg so much, he's going the extra step to make sure that Pete Buttigieg is elected. Of course, I'm talking about Facebook CEO and data thief Mark Zuckerberg, who even corporate Democrats can acknowledge maybe he should go to jail. Ron Wyden has even said he should possibly be imprisoned for theft of our personal data. But in spite of an emerging bipartisan consensus against Facebook and their various violations, well, Pete Buttigieg is choosing to go in the opposite direction. Rather than trying to rein Facebook in, he is uh, rallying behind Facebook, or at least allowing them to rally behind him. Because as Tyler Pager and Kurt Wagner of Bloomberg reports, Facebook chief executive officer Mark Zuckerberg has privately recommended several potential hires to Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign, a rare example of direct political involvement from one of tech's most powerful executives. Earlier this year, Zuckerberg sent multiple emails to Mike Schmuel, Buttigieg's campaign manager, with names of individuals that he might consider hiring. Campaign spokesman Chris Meager confirmed. Priscilla Chan, Zuckerberg's wife, also sent multiple emails to Schmuel with staff recommendations. Ultimately, two of the people recommended were hired. Zuckerberg, asked about the emails on a call with reporters Monday, acknowledged that he and his wife passed along hiring recommendations, but said that those actions should not be seen as an endorsement. Zuckerberg, 35, and Buttigieg, 37, overlapped at Harvard, and Buttigieg was friends with two of Zuckerberg's roommates. He was also one of Facebook's first 300 users, but they were only introduced years later by a mutual Harvard friend. Buttigieg, meanwhile, has become somewhat of a darling of Silicon Valley Democrats, repeatedly returning to San Francisco for high-dollar fundraisers. He's been more apprehensive about breaking up big tech companies than some of his Democratic counterparts, saying the issue of monopolies extends beyond tech, but he's also raised concerns about tech companies having too much power and has floated regulation including fines and the blocking of new mergers for Facebook and other big tech companies. And I'm sure that, you know, the coziness with, uh, 
uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Buttigieg's campaign has no influence over his policy position here whatsoever. I'm sure that Zuckerberg is more fearful of fines than facing actual jail time. So Pete Buttigieg, he's really holding Zuckerberg's feet to the fire. I mean, what a joke. What an absolute joke for Pete Buttigieg to be so brazen about his elitism, to wear it on his sleeve, to have this many billionaire donors. I mean, what are you doing? Like, who are you trying to appeal to? It's frustrating to me that Democratic Party primary voters haven't seen past, you know, the bullshit that some of these centrist neoliberal Democrats, these focus group driven poll minded politicians are peddling, but understand that this is not going to fly in a general election because Donald Trump is going to pound Pete Buttigieg for being an elitist. And guess what? That criticism will land. Now, Pete Buttigieg can also say that Donald Trump is an elitist. He's a billionaire, of course, but I mean, Pete Buttigieg is now getting cozy with billionaires. So why would you criticize one billionaire if you're getting cozy with others and billionaires and elitists and celebrities and oligarchs in America love you? I mean, that's not going to be a winning message. You're going to lose. Like, I have no doubt in my mind, if Pete Buttigieg is the nominee, uh, Donald Trump gets a second term. Now, what's scary is that according to at least one new poll from Iowa, Pete Buttigieg is getting a surge, right? He jumped from fourth to third, even surpassing Bernie in at least one poll. So if he wins the nomination, it's bad news for Democrats because this elitist doesn't have a shot. Working class people are not going to turn out and wait in line for hours, try to subvert voter suppression laws to vote for someone who is not going to look out for them. I mean, all the qualities that we disliked about Hillary Clinton are still present with Pete Buttigieg. There's the element of corruption. She took money from special interests and then changed her policy positions as a direct result of that, right? She had private and public positions when it comes to policies. Elizabeth Warren explained eloquently how Hillary Clinton changed her position on the bankruptcy bill after she started taking money from the big banks. So Pete Buttigieg, he's already demonstrated his capacity to do just that. Pete Buttigieg, at the start of this primary, let me remind you, supported Medicare for All, and then fast forward a few months, he starts moving against it as the campaign contributions from the private health insurance industry rolls in, and all of a sudden, he's one of the main opponents to Medicare for all. He's an empty suit. He's a fraud. And if you can't see that, then we have to make you see that, right? It's incumbent on us as progressives, as democratic socialists, to shine a light on these types of frauds. Pete Buttigieg has already demonstrated that he doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care about the bad optics. He just is looking out for his own career. That's what he cares about. He is a career-minded politician, and that doesn't really necessarily make him that much different from other politicians, but he wears it on his sleeve a lot more than other people. So nobody in the general election is going to give a flying fuck if you speak 42 languages, if you are the first gay potential president. Nobody is going to care about that. This is what people are going to ask themselves before casting their vote. Is this person going to do something for me that will be worth me giving up my time, possibly taking time from work to vote for him? The answer is likely going to be no, and that will be directly conducive to a victory for Donald Trump. <sighs> you know, you'd think that by now, in this era where you have these fake-ass thumb-pointing politicians like Pete Buttigieg, 
they would just be, you know, non-entities. But the fact that he's kind of getting a surge, a second surge possibly, in large part due to his performance at the Democratic debate, it's frustrating. Like, I, I thought that he lost that debate because it seemed obvious that he was coming across as someone who was deceitful and disingenuous, right, and an opportunist, but because CNN kind of propped him up and let him speak more than uh, Bernie Sanders even, or get at least equal time when he's in a distant fourth place, um, it kind of probably, I'm assuming, gave voters the impression that maybe he is a serious contender, maybe he's one of the front runners. So this is how media kind of picks and chooses winners. At first, you know, he got a little surge because the media was just reaping nonstop praise and fawning over him, right? And that adoration had a serious impact. And then he had the scandal in South Bend and is struggling to get black support. It jumped from 1% to 2%, so he's he's not doing well there. But the media could still prop him up uh, regardless because if they start talking about him again and saying how wonderful he is, then he can get a second rise, and we're kind of seeing that. But hopefully, this Zuckerberg email revelation will reveal to people that this is not someone to be taken seriously. This is someone who is not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. Pete Buttigieg cares about one person. Pete Buttigieg. That's it. End of story. So if you want to elect someone who cares about you and cares about policy, we all know who that is. It's Bernie Sanders. It's not some fraud like Pete Buttigieg, who's just another technocratic elitist who's going to lose to a buffoon like Donald Trump. Elitist Pete has more billionaire donors than any other 2020 Democratic Party primary contender. And to make matters worse, and to make himself look better, he has attacked individuals running in 2020 who relied disproportionately on small grassroots donors. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently called him out for this, and he was asked about her criticism on Fox News, of all places, and his response was utterly embarrassing. I think it's safe to say he face-planted and made an utter fool of himself. Take a look. Not surprisingly, the left is firing back at you when Elizabeth Warren said that she will not participate in big fundraisers, even if she is the Democratic nominee against Donald Trump. In the next fall, you said this. Let's put it on the screen. We are not going to beat him, Trump, with pocket change. Here's how Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded. Small dollar grassroots campaigns, a.k.a. what Buttigieg insults here as pocket change, out fundraise him by millions. Our nation's leaders should be working to end the era of big money politics, not protect it. So, what do you have to say to AOC? Well, first of all, you don't go from mayor of South Bend to a competitive presidential candidate without knowing a thing or two about grassroots campaigning. My campaign is fueled by the contributions of almost 600,000 individual donors, and most of those are small contributions. What I'm saying is that we can't go into this fight against Donald Trump with one hand tied behind our back. Look, the President of the United States and his allies just raised and. 25 million dollars. They will pull out all of the stops to stay in power. And I think we have a responsibility to the country to make sure that we go into this fight as Democrats with everything that we've got and not unilaterally disarming. We indeed need to end the era of big money politics. That's why campaign finance reform is so important and it will never happen as long as the folks currently in charge stay there. No, campaign finance reform will never happen if Democrats such as yourself partake in said corruption. 
Because why should we expect you to change the corrupt system that got you elected in the first place? The answer is, we shouldn't. Of course, if that system is what propelled you to victory, you're not going to change it. We'd be idiots to believe otherwise. Now, to AOC's point, she's absolutely correct that, you know, Pete Buttigieg is getting beat by people who rely on grassroots fundraising. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are outraising him pretty substantially. Now, Elizabeth Warren has said that she will be doing private fundraisers for the DNC in the general. She said this multiple times now, but, you know, for her and Bernie to have outraised Pete Buttigieg by millions of dollars, it shows why his strategy is antiquated and he's just trying to justify his corruption. And he argues, you know, you don't go from being the mayor of South Bend to a competitive presidential candidate without knowing a thing or two about grassroots campaigning. Except I'd actually argue that his lack of name recognition nationally is more of a reason for him to sell out quickly. Because if you have zero name recognition and you're really anxious, you want to get your name out there, you want to be competitive, one thing you can easily do is go beg rich people for money, they'll prop you out, get cozy with the elites in the media, they'll prop you up, and that's basically what Pete Buttigieg has done. And when you look at his fundraising methods, he is lying. He's not overwhelmingly relying on small dollar fundraisers. If you look at the money he's raising, 52.5% of all of his donations come from large donors. That's over $200. Now compare that to someone like Bernie Sanders, where only 25% of his contributions exceed $200, and 57% of his total donations are from small grassroots donors at an average of $19. You see why Pete Buttigieg is lying. And when you consider how he's been brazenly doing fundraisers with rich people in the Hamptons and is actively colluding with Facebook CEO and data thief Mark Zuckerberg, it's safe to say that Buttigieg is lying about just how quote-unquote grassroots-fueled his campaign actually is. But you see, if you're Pete Buttigieg, it's really important that you sell out because, quote, we can't go into this fight against Donald Trump with one hand tied behind our backs. You can't unilaterally disarm, you can't bring a knife to a gunfight, so you've got to sell out, you've got to take that corporate cash. You see how much it helped Hillary Clinton in 2016? Even though Donald Trump beat her by raising half as much, you know, it's still important that we have that same philosophy that Hillary Clinton had. <laughs> Except, of course, you know, that is quite literally a failed strategy, but I mean, I'm sure that this time, a different elitist technocrat is going to do better than Hillary Clinton. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is so out of touch. It's why I think that the best nickname for him is Elitist Pete. He's not running because he cares about policy. He's running because he's an opportunist who wants to advance his own career. I mean, think about this. When he first jumped into the race, he supported Medicare for All. Fast forward a few months... He starts moving away as the donations from the health insurance industry rack up, and all of a sudden, he's one of the biggest, you know, uh, opponents to Medicare for All. He's a fraud. He is a fraud. And I have no doubt in my mind that if he were the nominee, he would lose to Donald Trump. Because voters see through this. They see through these types of focus group-driven, poll-minded politicians who are full of shit, who aren't looking out for them, who are only looking out for their own career to only get elected and then sell out everyone who helped them get elected. Look, Pete Buttigieg is one of the worst. It's a competition between him and Joe Biden 
for who's the worst 2020 contender. He's atrocious. He's got to be defeated. He's a bad person. And anyone who takes him seriously, we have to educate them. Because Pete Buttigieg is not to be trusted. Pete Buttigieg would be a disaster against Donald Trump because he would get his ass beat because an elitist isn't going to fly in an anti-establishment era. I'm sorry. I don't care how many languages he speaks. I don't care how many uh, Ivy League schools he attended. An elitist will lose. Period. So I usually try to caution people against putting too much stock in any one poll because polling data is just more stable, it's more reliable at the aggregate level. So what you really want to do is step back and look at all of the polls and try to gauge where the candidates are at. With that being said, though, I'm going to make an exception for this segment. One, because I want to talk about a poll that produces results that I am uh, really excited about. So I'm kind of a hypocrite, admittedly. Uh, but second of all, I think that this could be possibly the continuation of what may be a trend change in this 2020 election. So we were all waiting to see how Bernie Sanders post debate endorsements from AOC and Ilhan Omar helped his campaign. And it turns out that one poll from Emerson shows that it had a tremendous impact on this race. So according to an Emerson poll that was conducted between October 18th through 21st, Bernie Sanders jumped from a distant third place to a solid second place, putting him just two points behind Joe Biden at 25% and four points ahead of Elizabeth Warren. So this is a substantial leap. But there's even more good news because among 18 to 29-year-olds, Bernie Sanders absolutely dominates with 45% overall, getting more than the next three candidates combined. So it's not even close. Bernie Sanders is the candidate of young people. Now, this could very well be an outlier, so I want you to be cautiously optimistic. I don't want you to get your hopes up. But still, there's a lot of really valuable information here in this poll. It tells us that Bernie Sanders' support among young voters, it's higher than we thought it was, right? This is huge. But on top of that, I'm starting to think that maybe this is the continuation of a new trend because when Bernie Sanders had his heart attack, if you look at real clear politics polling averages, he dropped to 14.3%, but he started to shift towards a more upward trajectory and now he's nearly at 17% on average, whereas Elizabeth Warren is on a relative downward trajectory, while Joe Biden had a sharp increase followed by a fairly stable lead although he has since evened out. So out of the top three frontrunners, it seems as if Bernie Sanders is the one currently at this moment in time with the momentum, the upward momentum. So I don't want you guys to just think that now is the time to feel energized because of this poll. What this poll tells us and what many polls have indicated is that Bernie Sanders by far and away is the candidate of young voters. So I need you to understand the enormous amount of power you have. If you are a millennial, if you are a Gen Z first-time voter, you single-handedly, we single-handedly can make or break this election. We can make or break it. Now, a lot of people complain about the validity of polls because there's this accusation that they undersample young voters intentionally. But I need you to understand that these polls are based off of polling trends or voting trends, rather. 
So in the last election cycle, if, you know, voter turnout for young people was low, that's basically what they're going to target for their sample when they do polls for the following elections. So just because Bernie Sanders uh, isn't polling in first place, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to lose. We can literally outperform the polls. It's just a matter of, will we do it? Will we get out and vote for Bernie Sanders? Will we caucus for Bernie Sanders? 30 years from now, I made this point on uh, Anna Kasparian's No Filter this week. We are going to look back at this moment in time and remember Bernie Sanders, win or lose. And we're going to either say that that was a moment where we squandered the opportunity we had to get Bernie Sanders elected and put us towards social democracy, or will we look back to this moment in time and say that was the start of a political revolution that made America a global leader when it comes to green, clean, renewable technology, where, you know, we got Medicare for all, where we canceled student debt. Like, this election can be decided by us. Will we actually seize on this moment as young people and take our future into our own hands and vote for the candidate that we know is looking out for us? You know, my answer is, I hope so, but really, what we need to do is put in the work. You're never going to be able to win anything in life without putting in time, without putting in effort. So if you're worried about your fellow millennials or Gen Zers not coming out to support Bernie Sanders, change their minds. Convince them. Maybe they support Bernie Sanders, but they feel as if their vote is meaningless. Maybe they feel as if it's not worth the time and effort to register, to stand in line and vote. Change their mind. Convince them otherwise, because, you know, a lot of people at that moment when Bernie Sanders had a heart attack in media, they wanted you to think that it was over. It was done. But we have three months before anyone casts a single vote or caucuses for Bernie Sanders. We can change this. We can decide this single-handedly. We just need to fight. That's it. So again, I usually don't like to dwell on the results from any one individual poll. I'm making an exception here because I think that we all need a little glimmer of hope in this moment after the uh, couple of weeks that we've had. And this is a good indication that Bernie Sanders may be on the rise. He may be surging. He may, may, may be getting a second win. Um, and that's, that's really, really nice to see. As if you needed another reason to support Bernie Sanders, he just took a stand on an incredibly significant issue. So when it comes to the war on whistleblowers that has been waged by Obama and now Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders has declared the side that he's on. He's on the side of whistleblowers. Now, as Ryan Grimm writes in an article for The Intercept, Bernie Sanders pledges to end practice of prosecuting whistleblowers under the Espionage Act. And he writes, the century-old law had largely gone out of fashion until it was deployed heavily by the Obama administration, which prosecuted eight people accused of leaking to the media under the Espionage Act, more than all previous presidents combined. 
President Donald Trump is on pace to break Barack Obama's record if he gets a second term. He has prosecuted eight such whistleblowers, five of them using the Espionage Act, according to the Press Freedom Tracker. The Espionage Act, which was passed in 1917 to suppress opposition to World War I and now considers leakers to effectively be spies, makes a fair trial impossible, as relevant evidence is classified and kept from the defense, and the bar for conviction is low. The law also comes with stiffer criminal penalties and longer sentences than more obvious charges that might be leveled, such as mishandling classified intelligence. Asked if he would give a second look at the record-setting length of the sentence doled out to National Security Agency contractor reality winner Sanders demurred, saying that he was supportive of whistleblowers but unfamiliar with her case. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who joined Sanders during the interview, agreed. I don't want to speak out of turn when it comes to reality winner, but I just think that the prosecution of whistleblowers is frankly against our democracy. We rely on whistleblowers. We rely on journalists in order for us to hold our systems accountable. And that is really important for him to say, I am taking the side of whistleblowers. That is, that's fantastic. That would be a change that is much needed to protect democracy, right? To allow people to not fear that they're going to be harshly prosecuted under the Espionage Act if they leak information to the public that the American people need to know. Now, having said that, we still have to push Bernie Sanders in a more positive direction. I would like a firm commitment from him to protect and pardon whistleblowers such as Reality Winner, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and Julian Assange. Now, Julian Assange is not an American citizen, but I mean, to drop the charges, to not prosecute him, to not, you know, opt for his extradition, that would be huge. Now, to her credit, I think Tulsi Gabbard is the only presidential candidate who has actually said, I would pardon these whistleblowers, but this is still a huge thing for one of the frontrunners, like Bernie Sanders, to say, to take a stand here, to draw a line in the sand and say... We're no longer going to prosecute whistleblowers under the Espionage Act. That's important. We just got to press, press him, you know, a little bit harder to maybe opt for pardoning them. Now, I do want to play a really quick clip from Ryan Grimm's interview so you can hear it from Bernie Sanders himself. Uh, referred to the whistleblower in the White House as a spy. And a lot of Democrats jumped on him for that. But his administration and the last one have both used the Espionage Act to prosecute leakers. Do you think the Espionage Act should be used to prosecute leakers? The law is very clear. Whistleblowers have a very important role to play in the political process, and I am very supportive of the courage of that whistleblower, whoever he or she may be. So look, this is really important, and this shouldn't be a thing that presidential candidates should even have to address. It should just be, you know, common procedure that, of course, we stand up for whistleblowers. People who expose corruption, who expose our government's war crimes, shouldn't have to fear prosecution. They already know that they're going to be persecuted by powerful people for exposing these things, but they shouldn't have to fear that they will be jailed if they expose things that the American people need to know. And Bernie Sanders here is saying what needed to be said a long time ago, so I really give him credit here because this is huge. And as Edward Snowden puts it, whoa, yeah, whoa is right because this really is huge. Um, we need this. It was really demoralizing to see President Barack Obama aggressively prosecute whistleblowers harsher than any other president. That was awful. And that set a precedent that, of course, led to Donald Trump and future presidents potentially doing the same thing. But Bernie is saying, I'm not going to do that. 
other presidential contenders need to also commit to not prosecuting whistleblowers. Now, would I believe them? No. So I believe Bernie Sanders. That's what's different. But to hear him say it, even though I knew this was the stance that he would take, it just reaffirms the fact that he is the real deal. And we all need to rally behind him if we want to defeat the establishment in 2020. What's remarkable about Bernie Sanders is that when he says he supports a particular policy, I trust that he actually does genuinely support it because he has been advocating for the same policies for decades. But it's not enough, in my view, to just support a policy that I agree with you on because that does matter and I can give you credit for that. But what I also need is assurance that you're going to fight for the policies you say you advocate for. And what's really important is to recognize that the system we have now is entirely rotten. It is corrupt to the core. So I need someone to put forward a strategy that is specific, that will get these policies codified into law. Because think about this, with how corrupt our system is, just the normal legislative process, it's not going to suffice. Proposing a piece of legislation and then crossing your fingers and hoping that it passes the House and the Senate... That's not good enough because you're not just taking on your opponents in Congress. You're not just trying to convince good faith allies that they should support the policy that you're proposing. You are taking on an entire multi-billion dollar industry, for example, when it comes to Medicare for all. So you're going to have to fight a massive disinformation campaign by the mainstream media. You're going to have to convince people in Congress to back your policy. And you're going to have to do everything in your power to twist arms and make people in power fear for their careers if they don't acquiesce. Now, in an interview with Kyle Kalinske, Bernie Sanders did say he'd be willing to primary corporate Democrats that don't get on board with policies like Medicare for All. Now, that is incredibly, incredibly important. Because if you're not willing to go to war with your own party, then you're not serious about student loan debt cancellation. You're not serious about the Green New Deal. And you're especially not serious about Medicare for All. Because even though a majority of Democrats in the House of Representatives support Medicare for All, in the Senate, it's still a very, very small amount of people who support it. So you have to crack skulls. You have to twist arms. In an interview with Ryan Grimm at his Bernie's Back rally with AOC, Bernie Sanders once again assured us that he has a very specific strategy to get these policies enacted. He is going to act as organizer-in-chief to mobilize people to put pressure on Congress to get these policies passed. So if you become president, uh, Richie Neal will become the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. He's fairly public about his opposition to Medicare for All. Meanwhile, he has an opponent in the primary who's supportive of Medicare for All. Should, should, should there I'm be a push gonna, and then... I'm not going to look at race by race. This is what I will tell you, though. I think the last poll that I saw has over 70% of the American people understanding that health care is a human right, that we need to go forward with Medicare for all. And as President of the United States, trust me, I will remind every member of the United States Congress and their constituents about the need to take on the health care industry and guarantee health care to every man, woman, and child. After the 2008 campaign, Obama shut down OFA, wouldn't allow it to pressure members of Congress. Would you do it differently? Yes, I absolutely would. Look, I'm a great fan of Barack Obama. He's a friend of mine. He and I have actually discussed this very issue. And his view is it's hard to do it. I understand it. 
But the essence of my politics, and I think Alexandria's as well, is that we need an ongoing grassroots movement of millions of people to pressure Congress, to pressure the corporate establishment so that we can bring about the changes that this country desperately needs. So that's why I have said that I will not only be commander in chief, I'm going to be organizer in chief. That's exactly what that means. So the first thing I want to point out is that Richard Neal, who will be on the Ways and Means Committee, who is a vocal opponent to Medicare for All, he does have a primary challenger, as Ryan Grimm pointed out. His name is Alex Morris, and we absolutely need to make sure that we get all of these corporate Democrats out of office. Alex Morris, he seems more like a Warren Democrat, but he still has pledged to not take corporate PAC money, and he's exponentially better politically than Richard Neal. So we just have to defeat these incumbent Democrats who will act as obstacles to progress. But what Bernie Sanders says here is really important. What he is alluding to is a strategy that aims to put pressure on people in power. So if Richard Neal is going to try to hold up Medicare for All and keep it in committee perpetually, we're going to occupy his office. We're not going to leave until he has a change of heart. Because guess what? These policies save lives. The Green New Deal would potentially save the planet. So we don't have time for all of these corporate Democrats to try to come up with some type of centrist solution to accommodate Republicans or their donors We've got to get them passed, and we've got to get them passed fast. Bernie Sanders gets that. And where Obama failed, and this is kind of what Bernie Sanders implies here, he allowed the movement that he built up during the 2008 election to just dematerialize and demobilize once he came to power. You know, that entire agenda wasn't able to succeed because the left went to sleep. So what Bernie Sanders is saying here is... I'm not just going to be the president. I'm not just going to be head of state, commander-in-chief. I'm going to be the organizer-in-chief. So what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? Well, let's say, hypothetically speaking, President Bernie Sanders proposes Medicare for All, and um, it passes the House of Representatives, but the Senate is still controlled by Republicans. We, um, we have a slim majority of Republicans in control, and we still can't really get very many corporate Democrats on board. Well, in every single major city in this country, Bernie Sanders calls on people to take to the streets, to occupy the offices in D.C. of their representatives who are not willing to vote for Medicare for All. And then we start GoFundMes to bankroll their opponents if they don't back Medicare for All. See, we need to make sure that politicians re-realize who's the boss, right? Like, politicians don't really understand that we're their bosses. Our tax dollars pay for their checks. Without us, they don't exist. Without us seeing them as legitimate, they don't have power. So they need to actually fear, fear for us, fear for their career, and realize that it's us who they're serving, not their donors. And Bernie Sanders acknowledges that political pressure does, in fact, work. Making phone calls does, in fact, have an impact. So if you have this inside-outside strategy where Bernie Sanders from within, and Kyle Kalinske talks about this to his credit, is putting pressure on people in power, and you have the grassroots putting pressure on people in power from the outside, you have a shot. Like, it's not a guaranteed victory, but you have a shot of actually getting fundamental change, right? Because nobody wants to make sure that they have, like, a hundred people in their office every morning 
hounding them about Medicare for all, they're likely just going to pass it. They're likely going to give in to pressure from the grassroots if it's so substantial. We just have to make sure that we're loud enough. So Bernie Sanders here, in talking about how he's going to be organizer-in-chief, he's reassuring me that, you know, I don't have to just trust that he's going to support these policies uh, when he gets in office. He's not going to change his mind, but he actually has a plan to get them codified into law. And this is going to be something that he alone can't accomplish. He's made this clear. Not me, us. We all have to have this back. We all have to be ready to go to bat for President Bernie Sanders and mobilize because that's the only way we're going to get policies like Medicare for All passed. That's just a fact of reality. It's not going to pass under normal legislative procedures. We're past that. A bill becomes law when, you know, special interests and elites push for it normally. So we've got to subvert that entire corrupt process and go directly to the source of power. Occupy their offices, protest, flood their, you know, voicemails with uh, messages, that's what we've got to do if we want a fighting chance. Amy Klobuchar is continuing her assault on Medicare for All. And look, I really don't know why I'm even talking about her. She has consistently polled at 1% and she's now at 1.8% following her post-debate surge. So she's going to be out of this soon. Um, but I mean, her criticisms of Medicare for All, they're so shallow, so intellectually lazy that I feel compelled to respond because this is the level of political analysis that you'd expect from a Fox News host, that you'd expect from a Republican. And really, at the rate that she's going, soon she's going to be talking about Venezuela and uh, fear-mongering about socialism. But regardless, this is what she had to say about Medicare for All. She trotted out the most laziest attack ever. I get concerned when some of the other candidates are making promises that I don't think that um, they can keep. No. So you're saying that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are not being straight with people by how they would pay for all these programs? Yes. Have you made that case, do you think, to some of those progressive voters who say now's the time to think big? Yeah, but I'm thinking big too. Essentially, Senator Warren said, though, that you're not thinking big enough, you're not thinking bold enough. I guess and big enough only means that everything's so for whatever reason, the audio cut out towards the end, but she said free stuff. So like any standard Republican, she is now bemoaning free stuff. And then she, of course, trotted out the, how are you going to pay for it argument? Brilliance. Bernie Sanders has been explicitly clear in saying how we finance Medicare for all. It's a single payer system. So we all pay into it with a small payroll tax, a tax significantly higher on people making upwards of $250,000 per year. They can afford that, and that's how we pay for it. We eliminate copays, premiums, and deductibles, but increase taxes, and overall, we get better health care. It's comprehensive, it's free at the point of service, and we save money. That's how we pay for it. But if you're really concerned, Amy, about how we pay for things, let me ask you this. How are we going to pay for Donald Trump's military budget, the $700 billion military budget that you voted to increase in 2017? How are we going to pay for that, Amy? Why is it that we're only asked how we're going to pay for things that help people? But when it comes to policies that lead to death and destruction, uh, there's no question. We just we have the money for it. 
It is incredibly frustrating. This is a double standard that you'd expect from Republicans, but when Democrats trot it out, it's especially evil, right? Because they are ostensibly supposed to be our allies, at least to an extent. They should be the ones that would defend Medicare for All to the point where they say, look, I don't agree with Medicare for All, but asking how we pay for it is kind of a ridiculous question considering Donald Trump didn't find a way to pay for his tax increase. We just, you know, put that on the credit card. We always raise the military budget, never disclose how we're going to pay for that. So let's not talk about how we're going to pay for things unless we actually figure out a way to pay for all of our policies that benefit the war machine and elites. But, you know, instead, she's just being lazy and asking, how are we going to pay for Medicare for all? I mean, keep it up, Amy. You can uh, surge. You've probably peaked at 1.8%. I think the highest she went was 2%, maybe. So, uh, in other words, Democratic Party primary voters, they're not buying what you're selling. Most Democrats want single payer. Most people, a majority of Americans, support Medicare for all. Now, support has dipped since liars like you have spread disinformation since you've entered the race. Nonetheless, it's still supported by a majority of Americans. So you're not going to be successful at driving down support for Medicare for All because people like myself, people like Bernie Sanders, we will actively fight against the misinformation that you're spreading. But what you are telling us is more about yourself. You're telling us that you're an opportunist and you're attacking this because you want to protect the health industry. Well, I say to hell with them and to hell with you. You're not going to win. So just drop out and endorse whatever corporatist Joe Biden um, because you're not going to win. So all of these attacks, they're moot because uh, you are a loser who has remained perpetually at 1%. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Back in April, when I interviewed 2020 presidential contender Andrew Yang, I asked him about Medicare for All because what I was seeing from him with regard to healthcare was contradictory. On one hand, when you go to his website, he clearly says he supports Medicare for All, but when you look at the details, well, it seemed like he supported a public option, so I asked him to clarify when he was on my program. This was his response. When you go to your website, there are three key policy planks. So the first one, of course, is UBI. The second is Medicare for All, and the other is human-centered capitalism, which I guess is more of a philosophy, but I still think that that's pretty helpful because it kind of gives us a sense of what you believe in. Now, going to Medicare for All, when I click on Medicare for All, what you seem to be describing is more of a public option. And at the CNN town hall you did, somebody asked you about healthcare and you said that you're firmly in the camp of Medicare for all slash public option. But my question to you is, these are two very different programs. So which one is it? Which do you actually want to implement as president? In my book, um, you know, it's like uh, I was uh, a little bit... Um, ambiguous in terms of those two things as well. But I've come to believe that uh, that a public option would be uh, better and also to enable a better transition. Um, and the goal is to make it, frankly, such that most private insurance has no place in the market and, uh, and that you get rid of it. Um, with, with the save for perhaps a few super gold-plated concierge things, that might not be a bad thing for the American people because if some really rich people are spending lots of money on 
esoteric <laughs> treatments, um, then we can benefit from that research uh, and the money. Um, so at this point, the plan that I saw that I've now gotten on board with um, has been bringing down the Medicare uh, eligibility age over time as a phased rollout and then make it so that all Americans become eligible for that, uh, try and get the prices down and the access up, and then essentially squeeze out the private insurers out of the marketplace uh, and demonstrate. Because you know most consumers, if you tell me, hey, I've got this low-cost, quality public option, um, I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to jump on that. Um, and you can make that happen, I think, uh, much more expediently than if you were to make uh, private insurance illegal. So he supports a public option. He does not support Medicare for all. He made that clear. Although in spite of that position on his website till this day, one of his big three policies is still Medicare for all. Now, since many people didn't see that portion of my interview, and since he still has it on his website, there's widespread belief that Andrew Yang supports Medicare for All, when in fact, that's not the case. Although, thankfully, somebody asked him about whether or not he supports Medicare for All, and he clarified, and this clip is actually getting a lot more traction, because I think people need to know where he stands. And he made it very clear, he does not support Medicare for All. Medicare for All, page 8 of Senator Bernie Sanders' bill, eliminates private insurers. Does that mean that you do not support the Bernie Sanders Medicaid for All bill? I support the spirit of what Bernie is trying to accomplish. Uh, I do think that outlawing private insurance uh, in a very short period of time is a bit too disruptive, uh, and I would not do it. So there you have it. Case settled. Andrew Yang does not support Medicare for All. Now, I have sounded the alarm about many candidates, Marianne Williamson, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and people say, well, I'm not being accurate. I'm not giving them enough credit. I'm not giving them the benefit of the doubt. But let me tell you this. Politicians, if they are vocalizing to you any little bit of uncertainty about a particular policy, we have a reason to panic because politicians, they have to prove to us that they support the policies they say that they support. Just expressing support for it in this day and age, that's not enough. Like, you have to really look at the details. You need to press them to make sure that they prove to you that they support these policies. And um, the fact that Andrew Yang now is saying, I don't support Medicare for all, this is good, but it's frustrating to me that he still has this on his website. Like, if you're watching this, Andrew, you need to remove Medicare for All from your website because you don't support Medicare for All. It's misleading. Now, what he is conceptualizing with regard to healthcare reform is if we do a public option, my goal with that is to kind of drive out the private insurance providers, right? Have something that's so competitive, that's run by the government that people can buy into, that we're not really allowing much room for these private companies to compete. The problem with that is... It's totally unrealistic because a public option is doomed to fail. So this is why now when we're talking about healthcare reform, to settle for anything less than single payer, we're idiots if we do that. Because this is what's going to happen. If we pass a public option, we can make Medicare for all and the fight to get true single payer 
even more difficult long-term to get codified into law. And I'll tell you why that's the case. Because as Dr. George Bohmfock of Physicians for a National Health Program put it in a September op-ed for the Charlotte Observer, there are two fundamental reasons that a public option cannot work. The big solvable issue in our healthcare system is the 30% of every healthcare dollar that is squandered on administrative overhead, paperwork, the pre-approvals, denials, and appeals that are an integral part of myriad for-profit private insurance companies. That's around one trillion every year. Only a single-payer system like Medicare for All can cut that trillion dollars in half by eliminating that bureaucratic waste. That half, 500 billion, can be redirected to providing comprehensive healthcare to all Americans. It's not free. We'll pay for it in taxes, which for most of us will be less than what we're currently spending on premiums, copays, deductibles, and other healthcare expenses. We'll pay less in the end for more health care for everyone. The other fatal flaw in a public option is that it will likely become the insurer of last resort to the sickest and oldest among us. The insurance playing field will be anything but level. As deficient as they are, for-profit insurers will cleverly market themselves to the young and healthy, leaving those who use more healthcare to the public option. Its costs will balloon, dooming it to fail to the delight of for-profit companies. And once that happens, then Republicans, along with corporate Democrats, Democrats are going to point to the failure of a public option as evidence that government-run healthcare doesn't work. And then what happens? We make it that much more difficult to convince people that single-payer is the way to go. So anyone who's opting for a public option, they're doing it to the detriment of Medicare for all single-payer. Now, they might try to reason with you and say it's easier to get achieved or it's one way, like Andrew Yang says, to kind of drive out the private insurance companies. But unless you are explicitly banning duplicative care. You are not going to get rid of these private insurance companies. And part of banning duplicative care means that if you really want to get rid of them, you have to offer comprehensive coverage. So that way, all they can offer is supplemental, but you leave them not really much to offer, and then you basically make sure they go out of business. Like, this is very complicated, so it's easy for a lot of people to be misled by politicians who just want them to think that they have your best interest in mind. But by saying this here, Andrew Yang either doesn't know what Medicare for All and public option means and how they are different from one another, or he does know and he just wants you to think that he supports Medicare for All. But understand, he does not support Medicare for All. And when it comes to my vote, I'm not supporting anyone who doesn't support Medicare for All because if you can't even support something that a majority of Democratic Party primary voters support that would save 30,000 lives per year, then I don't think you have our best interests in mind. So I'm going to be supporting Bernie Sanders, who has never wavered on Medicare for All. He is one of two candidates who currently support Medicare for All single payer, and he's the only candidate who has never wavered on Medicare for All. Elizabeth Warren says she supports it now. Unfortunately, she has wavered on it multiple times and given us some signals that maybe she would back down in the event she gets elected. If you truly support Medicare for All, this is your one issue that you really care about the most. It's not even a question. You vote for Bernie Sanders because everyone else has backed away from it or demonstrated, you know, at least some level of open-mindedness to opt for a lesser reform in order to appease their political opponents. That's not acceptable. If we don't get single-payer now, 
when the momentum is there, when, you know, if we don't strike while the iron is hot, then we're probably never going to get it. So let's opt for the politician who is very clear about this, who is saying, I support single payer Medicare for all. And yes, we're going to get rid of private insurance companies. I understand that politicians may not want to take that stance because it makes you a target of a multi-billion dollar industry. But if you truly are running because you want to be a fighter for the American people, now is the time to prove it. Bernie's the only one who has passed that test. So we're about three months out from the Iowa caucus, and we are reaching a pivotal point in the 2020 Democratic Party primary. This is really the time when candidates are facing a lot of pressure to ramp up their fundraising efforts. They need to demonstrate that their campaigns have longevity, that they are politically viable. So what we're going to see is some of them, they may start to crack. They may start to waver on the principles that they espouse going into the race. Now, some candidates are already doing that. That's what we're going to talk about in this segment. But unsurprisingly, of course, Joe Biden is one of them. Because going into this, he pledged to not have a super PAC. Although, fast forward a few months later, and as the supposed frontrunner, you know, to be outraised by four other candidates in the third quarter, this is not a good look. This led to panic among the donor class because now they're worried about his longevity, whether or not he actually can go the distance and win the primary. And the problem with Joe Biden and his fundraising model is that he raises money disproportionately by begging rich people for money. He holds these fundraisers in the Hamptons and these rich people, they like him, so they max out. But once you max out, once you donate $2,800 to a candidate, that's it. I mean, if you don't have a super PAC, that's the limit. So there's a ceiling, right? And Joe Biden's campaign has, in fact, reached that ceiling. So the donor class knows this, Biden's campaign knows this, and they are in full-out panic mode, which is why he's now changing his tune about super PACs. So creating a super PAC will allow these rich people who have already contributed to Joe Biden to now donate unlimited sums of money to his campaign. And his deputy campaign manager justified this new move, saying, this is about beating Donald Trump. It's not about losing or winning the Democratic Party primary. Yes, because outraising Donald Trump by a two-to-one margin definitely helped Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Look, that's nonsense. Nobody believes that. This is about beating the other Democrats. This is why he is uh, changing his tune about a super PAC, right? If you need more money and your rich donors who are already supporting you maxed out, you have no other choice. I mean, you technically do have a choice. You can try to raise money through the grassroots, but, you know, that lane is already being occupied by Bernie Sanders and, to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren. So Biden probably feels as if he has no choice. If he wants to win, you've got to ramp up fundraising uh, because we're seeing firsthand what happens when you don't satisfy your donors, when they seem to think that you're starting to lose momentum. They panic and they start looking for other options, as is uh, demonstrated in that New York Times article. So that's why Joe Biden obviously is starting to waver on that principle of not taking uh, super PAC money, not having a PAC. But, you know, that's not surprising. Like, we all expect an establishment figure like Joe Biden to do that because Joe Biden is corrupt, right? But what you really shouldn't expect, theoretically speaking, is anti-establishment candidates like Andrew Yang to do the same thing. We should expect them to be the least susceptible to pressure from special interests. But unfortunately, that's not really the case because we actually learned that Andrew Yang, like Joe Biden, 
has a super PAC. And as HuffPost's Kevin Robillard reports, businessman Andrew Yang's presidential campaign has relied on his outsider image and message to turn in a surprisingly strong performance so far. But he's now the only Democratic presidential primary candidate embracing a favored tool of political insiders a super PAC. The group backing Yang's presidential bid, Math PAC, is run by Will Haler, a Democratic operative who previously worked as a senior advisor to the Democratic National Committee and as a top staffer for now Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Haler told Recode the group planned to spend at least $1 million to back Andrew Yang. Now for context, this article came out a day before we learned that Joe Biden was changing his tune about having a super PAC. So now there is two candidates who have super PACs if Joe Biden does in fact follow through. I think he probably will, but nonetheless, this is what Andrew Yang said about Math PAC when asked about it. We all know we have a broken campaign finance system where there's a flood of money uh, and it's overrun our policies, our politicians. I know very little about the Math PAC, genuinely. <laughs> um, if it's the case that we have the rules that we have and people want to help uh, support my message in my campaign. Um, you know, given the system we have right now, they're free to do so. Um, but I genuinely know very, very little about uh, the the math pack. I just hope that they uh, that they are aligned with my vision for the country and they invest accordingly. Not good enough. Now, to his credit, Andrew Yang has actually spoken pretty eloquently about just how broken our campaign finance system is, and he's proposed campaign finance reform that I think is fairly solid. But for you to say that about a super PAC that's supporting you seems pretty contradictory, right? Like, if I were Andrew Yang and I found out about a super PAC supporting me, uh, what do I do? Well, first and foremost, most importantly, you unequivocally disavow that super PAC, and you say, look, if this super PAC truly supports me, they would know that their existence is antithetical to what my campaign is about. We're not in favor of raising money through large sums of untraceable dark money. That's not what we're about. We're raising small grassroots donations. I mean, Andrew Yang himself has said that his donors are even a little bit cheaper than Bernie's because the average contribution is about uh, $18 or $19 or something like that. So, I mean, for him to just say, oh, well, I just hope that, you know, this campaign upholds, uh, this super PAC rather, upholds my campaign's values, that's not good enough. So why is he doing this? Well, it's because he wants to take money from special interests. And don't take my word for it, because this is what he said about whether or not he would hold private fundraisers with rich people in the general election in the event he becomes the Democratic Party's nominee. If you were to win the nomination, would you swear off hosting large dollar fundraisers in the same way Senator Elizabeth Warren has? I will do whatever it takes to beat Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, and to me you have to use everything at your disposal because if you're facing a nominee that has raised over a hundred million dollars uh, and has many rich donors who come together for big ticket fundraisers, uh, leaving that off the table for the Democratic nominee strikes me as uh, not the best way to compete and win. Most Democrats, first and foremost, if you ask them what their criteria are for the nominee, it's to win. And it doesn't do us any good to lose by tying one of our hands behind our backs. Uh, we need both hands free to beat Donald Trump. Would you still dismiss corporate PAC money, though, if you were the nominee? 
I have no intention of taking corporate PAC money. Um, I don't think we would need that to win. Uh, uh, so that that's my stance on it. Okay, that makes no sense because you can refuse corporate PAC money, but by holding those private fundraisers, you're still allowing rich people, corporate special interests, to influence you. Because if you say, look, we're running a general election, if you want to meet with me, $5,000 a plate at this private dinner, they're going to buy access to you. They're still going to be able to influence you, perhaps even in a more persuasive way than if they just donated to you. So that isn't a very persuasive argument, and it doesn't reassure me. And his justification for that sounds eerily familiar to something that I heard recently. We can't go into this fight against Donald Trump with one hand tied behind our back. And it doesn't do us any good to lose by tying one of our hands behind our backs. Now, let me remind you that Pete Buttigieg is one of the most establishment elitist people in the Democratic Party primary today. So for Andrew Yang's rhetoric on private fundraisers to be indistinguishable, identical actually, from Pete Buttigieg's, that just goes to show you that Andrew Yang isn't the real deal, contrary to popular belief. And, you know, part of the problem is that when you start to be successful and, you know, uh, you raise a lot of money, he did a phenomenal job in Q3, Andrew Yang, to his credit. But here's the thing, when you start to get successful and people see that your campaign is competitive, well, the system itself tries to co-opt you. And now, all of a sudden, Andrew Yang is squandering the anti-establishment appeal he had left to cozy up with people in the establishment in order to gain power. Because even if he's doing fairly well in terms of polling, just based on who he is, and with his lack of name recognition, well, we're three months away from Iowa, and if you're not on top, you probably won't win. So to gain power, this is what Andrew Yang is saying. Who on that debate stage is closest to you in terms of your view of the world? Who Who is closest to you in that sense? You know, it's funny you ask that. I mean, you'd have to sort of, like, put us all together in some kind of, like, Franken-candidate. Uh, no, you must, there must be someone in spirit who's perhaps closest to you. Uh, I will say the only person who's taken me aside and said that we need to really worry about the fourth industrial revolution because it uh, could potentially tear our country apart is Joe Biden. Joe Biden pulled you aside. That's an intriguing... Would you serve on a Biden ticket? You said you were open to anything? I, I'm, I'm definitely open to working with Joe. We've actually talked about it. Look, when you're asked which Democrat is closest to your worldview and your answer is Joe Biden, you do not have the people's interest in mind at all. And when you couple that with Andrew Yang's rhetoric on Israel-Palestine, his opposition to the wealth tax, his refusal to support Medicare for all. Andrew Yang isn't the change candidate he wants you to believe he is. Now, I already know that Yang's fans will respond by saying, but Mike, you know, what about the freedom dividend? Don't you think it's important that everyone gets $1,000 per month? Well, look, I support UBI. And it would be great if he passed that in a way that supplemented our existing social safety net and passed it alongside additional structural reforms. But I mean, just giving us $1,000 per month without tackling the system, without trying to reverse late stage capitalism, you're only opening the door to exploitation. And effectively, you're not going to do very much because employers will just use that $1,000 per month to justify their unwillingness to raise wages. And lawmakers will tell you that, you know, we don't have to worry about the minimum wage because now everyone's getting $1,000 per month. In fact, Andrew Yang himself is against raising the minimum wage. I don't even know if he supports the minimum wage. On top of that, without structural reform, you know, that $1,000 per month isn't going to mean dick if a private insurance company, which Andrew Yang would leave in place, 
chooses to suddenly raise your monthly health insurance premium or your landlord decides to raise your rent all of a sudden. So, I mean, needless to say, at this point, after initially, you know, supporting Andrew Yang from the standpoint of I want his ideas in this race to kind of influence the discussion, I'm just done with Andrew Yang. I'm, I'm tired of these candidates who are trying to pass as anti-establishment figures doing the same tired shit that establishment figures, that corporate Democrats are doing, supporting the same policies or not supporting the same policies that uh, corporate Democrats are supporting. But I mean, to be fair, Andrew Yang isn't the only ostensibly anti-establishment candidate who has shit the bed as of late because Tulsi Gabbard is another one. Now, I've given her credit. We're all supportive of the fact that she has gone after Hillary Clinton in a really direct way and called out her corruption. Her criticizing Hillary Clinton as the embodiment of corruption I mean, this is great to see, right, if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter and you saw what transpired in 2016, but if you're criticizing Hillary Clinton for her corruption, presumably because of her closeness to Wall Street, why on earth would you choose to do this? Quote, Tulsi Gabbard amid Hillary Clinton tussle hits Wall Street fat cat syndicate. Now, is this a private fundraiser? No, it's a private meeting, but it doesn't seem as if it's a fundraiser. Is she getting money from them? Uh, she may ask for donations, but it doesn't seem as if they're donating to her yet. Um, is she giving uh, a paid speech to them? No, but nonetheless, the fact that you're holding a private meeting with Wall Street executives, that's a little bit sketchy, to say the least, if you are supposed to be on the left, if you're a self-identified progressive. But nonetheless, here's the report from Fox News. This is what they say. As all this is going on, Fox Business has learned that Gabbard was in New York City last night for a private meeting with Wall Street executives and possible donors. Um, this meeting occurred at Anthony Scaramucci's Hunt and Fish Club. Hmm. It was sponsored by uh, Robert Wolf, who, as you know, is a Fox business contributor, but also a prominent Democratic uh, Party fundraiser. Also, a guy that's part of the establishment, which raised some, raised some eyebrows. Also, we should point out Bob is himself a Wall Street executive, runs both a private advisory firm, used to be the CEO of UBS Americas, but he also has some sort of a political uh, firm, advisory firm that he does on the side with Anthony Scaramucci. So this all occurred last night. It was a private function. It was attended by about two dozen Wall Street executives. Uh, these are potential donors. They will likely be hit up for contributions uh, by, the, by, the, by the Gabbard campaign at some point, I am told. Um, and it did raise a lot of eyebrows. Now, apparently, she did not attack Hillary Clinton during this meeting. Uh, and she really did impress the Wall Street folks. Yeah, that's a big yikes. Big yikes. Now, because the source is Fox News, I'm willing to extend a little bit more deference to Tulsi Gabbard because of that fact, although uh, Tulsi Gabbard's press assistant on Twitter, Colin Tiernan, retweeted Robert Wolf, who did in fact confirm that the meeting took place, albeit he did say that the discussion was centered on foreign policy, as if that would make it any better. But nonetheless, you know, he confirmed that it took place, and um, that's an issue. So, I mean, if you're on the left and uh, you're keeping track of what Tulsi Gabbard has been doing as of late, well, she recently came out against the federal jobs guarantee at the last debate. Prior to that, she flip-flopped on Medicare for All, even though her fans will passionately tell you she still supports it. She does not. She voted against BDS. She doesn't support a Green New Deal. She told Dave Rubin it's accurate to say Democrats support open borders. She still supports Modi and is now meeting with Wall Street executives privately. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, needless to say, 
I'll pass on Tulsi Gabbard. Here's the thing. Going into this primary, I was so optimistic and a little bit naive, to be honest, because, you know, I saw all of these anti-establishment candidates, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson, and I thought it's so nice and refreshing to see, you know, this many outsiders run. Although as time went on, they started to back away from the progressive proposals that they started to run on, you know, one by one. Andrew Yang, Marianne Williamson, Tulsi Gabbard all backed away from Medicare for All. But look, here's the thing. There's no contest, there's no debate. If you're on the left and you want to defeat the establishment, there's one candidate who has a shot at beating the establishment, who isn't full of shit, who's not warming up and getting cozy with special interests. His name is Bernie Sanders. And while everyone else is warming up to the idea and prospect of possibly getting a little bit cozy with elites, this is what Bernie Sanders said when he was asked about the prospect of a super PAC. And, you know, he was asked to react to Joe Biden getting a super PAC. I just see in the news today where Joe Biden has decided to use a super PAC, dropping his opposition to that. And I think that's interesting seeing where in the past he has said that he was the one that convinced you not to take that kind of money. So I would just like to know what your comments are on that, sir. Well, Joe Biden didn't have to convince me not to take a, not to start a super PAC. When I, thank you for the question, when I talked about the corruption of the American political system, what it gets down to is that a very small number of people, many millionaires and billionaires, are today, especially as a result of Citizens United, which by the way, we are going to overturn. But we have a situation today where billionaires can spend as much money as they want to elect candidates who represent the wealthy and the powerful. Now, I am immensely proud of two facts in this campaign. First of all, I am proud that we have more volunteers here in Iowa and all over this country, including, I suspect, a number of you, who are out making calls and knocking on doors. We have more volunteers than any other campaign. And that's why we're going to win this election, because at the end of the day, TV ads are important. We got TV ads. Radio ads are important. We got radio ads. But at the end of the day, what's far more important is people-to-people conversations. But the second thing that I am extremely proud of is that we together have revolutionized political campaign financing in America. Four years ago, not such a long time ago, what politics in America was about is that candidates would go out to the homes of wealthy people that have 50 millionaires in a room, they leave that room with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we said that is not what American democracy is about. It is an outrage. You read it in the papers every day. A group, an article in the New York Times the other day, a group of donors said A, B, and C. Who the hell cares what a group of rich donors say? They no longer control. What they're upset about, let me tell you what they're upset about. They're upset that we have in this campaign over one million Americans who have made contributions to our campaign. And they are teachers, 
They are workers at Walmarts. They're workers at Amazon. They are people making 12, 13 bucks an hour, contributing, I think, on average, $16 a contribution. And I am humbled, honest to God, I am humbled by that support. So I don't need a super PAC. I am not going to be controlled by a handful of wealthy people. I will be controlled by the working people of this country. It's not even a debate. If you are on the left, without question, Bernie is your best bet for fundamental change. That's it. That's not to say that candidates like Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, and Marianne Williamson don't bring unique perspectives to the table that I appreciate. With that being said, though, if we truly want to defeat the establishment, then there's one candidate polling in third place who has a shot at defeating the establishment. It's Bernie Sanders. So imagine if we all united behind Bernie Sanders, who's the real deal, who hasn't wavered on Medicare for all. Imagine what that would do for, you know, polling. Imagine the message that that would send to the establishment. The one candidate who has made it very clear he's not willing to be co-opted, who has made it clear he is enemies with elites and Wall Street executives. If he rose, then that would be great for all of us. So let's stop playing around. Let's just admit the obvious. It's Bernie. It's always been Bernie. He's the truly best candidate for the left. And if you want to win, if you want all of us to defeat the establishment and defeat Donald Trump ultimately, we opt for Bernie Sanders. Because not only is he the best, politically speaking, from a policy standpoint, he has the best shot at winning. So if you want to defeat the establishment, you're not serious about that unless you're backing Bernie Sanders. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> we've got one last chance to save the planet and uh, save the country to stop capitalism from totally collapsing in on itself. And we don't want to squander that chance. It's Bernie Sanders. 30 years from now, we will be looking back at this moment and kicking ourselves if we don't elect Bernie Sanders. Let's do the right thing. Because we told all of ourselves hindsight is 2020. We've got a second shot at electing Bernie Sanders. Let's not ruin that. Let's elect Bernie because we know he's the real deal and he's the only candidate we can trust to actually fight for us. Bernie Sanders is on a roll because yet again, he is proposing a new policy that would fundamentally change the lives of potentially millions of Americans. So what is he doing now? Well, he is going to legalize cannabis in all 50 states. And on top of that, he's going to expunge the records of all marijuana related convictions. Now, how is he going to get this done? Well, he's going to use executive action and legislation. But what's interesting about this is he's pledging to do this within the first 100 days of his administration. So what he plans to do is direct his attorney general to declassify marijuana as a controlled substance. And on top of that, he's going to push for legislation that directly legalizes it in all 50 states. Now, on top of that, he'll nominate an HHS secretary and DEA administrator that will end the war on weed as well as the war on drugs itself. So this is big. And one thing that's important about this is it acknowledges the fact that 
prohibition on cannabis and the war on drugs, it hasn't impacted everyone equally. So communities of color have been disproportionately impacted. So what he's trying to do is craft a policy that will right the wrongs of the past, make it so that way those who were hurt by this can now potentially benefit by the legalization of cannabis. So looking at his proposal, the plan would, quote, ensure that revenue from legal marijuana is reinvested in communities hit hardest by the war on drugs, especially African-American and other communities of color. So what he's going to do is take the revenue that is generated from this and use it to benefit entrepreneurs of color that have historically been discriminated against and denied access to wealth and capital that wasn't there in the past. On top of that, minority-owned businesses that currently exist will be given access to additional grants in those communities that have been devastated by the war on drugs. He'd also offer training at trade schools for those incarcerated due to marijuana if they want to get into the marijuana business, which is great. He'd fund economic development in communities hit the hardest by the war on drugs. And additionally, knowing that the marijuana industry will one day be absolutely huge, he's instituting controls that would stop it from becoming a predatory industry in the same way that big tobacco is today. So what he's trying to accomplish essentially is twofold. He obviously wants to legalize marijuana in all 50 states. And on top of that, of course, he wants to right the wrongs of the past. People who were affected by marijuana prohibition will be able to use what previously harmed them to now benefit them, give them access to wealth, to capital, things that they were denied historically. This is great. Now, look, Bernie knows this. You're never going to be able to fully right the wrongs of the past, right? We can't give the people who spent years in prison because of marijuana-related convictions those years back. We can't add those years to their lives. But what we can do is try to allow them to benefit from something that previously hurt them. It hurt them from a socioeconomic standpoint, and it literally led to them losing their freedom. This is the only answer when it comes to legalizing marijuana. This is exactly how you want to do it. You want to design it so that way it's not just legal, but so that way you try to undo the damage caused by the war on drugs. So this is phenomenal. Now, for me, it really still trips me out because I live in Oregon. We've had legal marijuana here for years. The fact that in some states you can't even get medical marijuana, but I can easily walk into a store a few blocks away from my house and purchase as much pot as I want, it's just, it's mind-blowing, right? It's, it's a completely cultural difference in some states and others. And now we have the entire West Coast that uh, has legal weed, and the rest of the country has to catch up. Like, this isn't even something that should be debatable. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. Everyone should be in favor of this. But few politicians are actually trying to do what's right. And Bernie Sanders, thankfully, is one of them who's really making this one of the main issues that they are focusing on. This is not just popular, right? This isn't just a winning issue, which draws in not just independents, but libertarians, potentially. But it's also an issue that's right. Like, we want to do policies that are driven by morality, our desire to improve people's lives. And it's evident that Bernie designed this policy with that in mind. Um, so I love it. And uh, I'm just excited to see what he proposes next week because every single week he comes up with a new policy proposal. And these are fantastic. This is how you run a race. In a hearing before the House Financial Services Committee, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was grilled by lawmakers, and this was so satisfying to watch because for those of you who haven't been paying attention, let me uh, get you up to date. Facebook is a company that collects and sells 
your personal data. Now, on top of that, they go out of their way to appease the right. And they do this not only by using an affiliate of the far-right news outlet, The Daily Caller, to quote-unquote fact-check news articles, but Facebook is also exempting politicians from any of said fact-checking, meaning that if you're a politician and you are running a political ad, you can literally lie in that ad and Facebook will still take your money and they will still run that ad. Now, on top of that, Zuckerberg recently held a private meeting with conservative pundits for whatever reason, and he is actively assisting presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, who, let me remind you, would possibly save his company from other candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who have expressed interest in breaking up Facebook. So, I mean, in my view, we've gotten past the discussion about whether or not we should break up Facebook. We have these antitrust laws. We need to use them. If there's ever been a company that needs to be broken up, Facebook is one of them. And we need to go further than that and consider prosecuting Mark Zuckerberg because, again, this is a data thief. Now, I'm frustrated, as you can tell, but another individual who was frustrated with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's antics is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think shined during this entire hearing because she grilled him perhaps harder than any other lawmaker and you can tell that he was visibly, like, disturbed. Like, he didn't know how to respond. It was incredibly awkward. And you can tell that, like, the robot was malfunctioning. This was great. So, enjoy. Under your policy, you know, using census data as well, could I pay to target predominantly black zip codes and advertise them the incorrect election date? No, Congresswoman, you couldn't. We, we have, even for these policies around the newsworthiness of, of mm -hmm. content that politicians say and the general principle that I believe that... But you said you're not going to fact-check my we, ads. We have, if, if, uh, if anyone, including a politician, is saying things that uh, can cause, that is calling for violence or uh, could risk imminent physical harm or voter or census suppression mm -hmm. when we roll out the census suppression policy, um, we will take that content down. So, so you will... There is some threshold where you will fact check political advertisements. Is that what you're telling me? Well, Congresswoman, yes, and for specific things like that, where there's imminent risk of harm. Could I run ads targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? Sorry, I, I, can you repeat that? Would I be able to run advertisements on Facebook targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the, the bounds here. What's fair Congresswoman, game? I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I think So probably. you don't know if I'll be able to do that? I think probably. Um, do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being... Uh, from it, from in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in- I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual in, Yes, in most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's, uh, 
it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic post, ads, okay. the, the treatment is a little One different. question, one more question. In your ongoing dinner parties with far-right figures, some of who advanced the conspiracy theory that white supremacy is a hoax, did you discuss so-called social media bias against conservatives, and do you believe there is a bias? Uh, Congresswoman, um, so I don't remember everything that was in the, send in, in the question. That's all right. I'll move on. Can you explain why you've named The Daily Caller, a publication uh, well-documented with ties to white supremacists as an official fact-checker for Facebook? Congresswoman, sure. We actually don't appoint the independent fact-checkers. They go through an independent organization called the Independent Fact-Checking Network that has a rigorous standard for who they allow to, uh, to serve as a fact-checker. So... You would say that white supremacist tied uh, publications meet a rigorous standard for fact-checking? Thank you. Uh, Congresswoman, I would say that we're not the one assessing that, that standard. The International Fact-Checking Network is the one who is setting that standard. I have seen this video now multiple times in preparation for this segment, and it never gets old. It's so good because what she did there was just flawlessly expose him for the fraud that he is. And think about how absurd the situation is. So she asks, look, can I literally run an ad against a Republican in a competitive primary and say that he or she supports the Green New Deal, something that they're obviously vehemently opposed to? Um, his answer, oh, well, I don't know off the top of my head. You don't know? So you're literally not sure if we can outright lie about political opponents on Facebook, you would still take that money? Is the money too good? I mean, think about how absurd this can potentially be. Donald Trump can literally run an ad, hypothetically speaking, let's say we're at the general, Bernie's the nominee, Trump can run an ad against Bernie Sanders and say that he is a Satan worshiper. Um, conversely, Bernie Sanders can run an ad saying that Donald Trump regularly engages in bestiality. I mean, this is what you are allowing for if you exempt politicians from fact-checking. So anyone can pay money to spread lies, to spread misinformation on your website. That is absolutely insane. That shows how greedy and money-hungry Facebook is. Because if you have integrity, you say, no, we're going to scrutinize all of these ad requests, and before we, we approve anything, we're going to make sure that they're not just outright lies or smears. But um, that's not what they're doing. And to kind of demonstrate how low they're willing to go, Elizabeth Warren recently trolled Facebook by proving they have no standard. She ran an ad saying that Mark Zuckerberg endorsed Donald Trump. And, of course, that was literal fake news, but she was trying to prove a point about how they'd accept anything. And, uh, I mean, they proved her point right. Now, when it came to the meetings with far-right figures, um, AOC not only had him stumped like he didn't know how to respond... He was visibly uncomfortable. Like, it's difficult to see any human emotion from someone like Mark Zuckerberg. At that moment, that was the most awkward moment. He was stumped. Um, on top of that, so she moved on and asked him, you know, um, why he named the Daily Caller as the fact checker. He had no persuasive response. She exposed him for, like, the fraud that he is. Look, this is about money. Facebook is a business, right? So they are doing whatever they can to make sure that they increase their profits, increase revenue. That even means that we allow any ads, including lies, to be spread. On top of that, um, he's meeting with 
conservatives based on stupid allegations that there is a media bias or Facebook bias against conservatives. I mean, this same bias, if it exists, it applies to everyone, the left, like the right. But since they're bigger crybabies, since they whine about it more loudly, then uh, these tech giants, they are more inclined to kind of appease them than everyone else. So look, uh, I don't have much else to say about this. I just wanted you to see this because she took the five minutes of time that she had to question him and she used it brilliantly. Like, I don't think you could have pulled this off any better. She did everything that I would have expected and wanted. And this was phenomenal. Kudos to AOC. This was great on her part. Um, She really did reveal to America that Zuckerberg is a fraud and Facebook really should be broken up without question. So part of what made the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality so nefarious was that Ajit Pai tried to preempt states from passing their own net neutrality laws in the event they didn't like his federal repeal of net neutrality. But as you all know, fast forward to 2019, a court mostly upheld that repeal of net neutrality, although they did say that states are allowed to pass their own net neutrality laws. So now you have a number of states along the West Coast. You have Washington State, Oregon, California, of other states, I believe uh, Montana and Vermont even, they have net neutrality while some states don't. So for the most part, Ajit Pai got what he wanted. He won, right? He should be happy that he's not impeached because he pushed through a repeal of net neutrality in spite of a massive fraudulent campaign that flooded the FCC's comment system with fake comments. Like, he should be happy right now that he has a job, but nonetheless, he's not happy, and he's literally been complaining about the fact that some states have net neutrality. And the argument he's using to say why this is bad is absolutely hilariously ironic. So as the Daily Dot's Andrew Wyrick reports, Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai is defending the agency's repeal of net neutrality rules and has spent recent days arguing against states passing their own open internet laws in a series of interviews. Earlier this month, the United States Court of Appeals District of Columbia Circuit released a highly anticipated decision that mostly upheld the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, but also opened the door for states to enact their own laws in the absence of one at the federal level. That opening has been called a huge opportunity by net neutrality advocates, with one law in particular, California's gold standard legislation, possibly becoming a blueprint for states who want to pass their own in the future. The California law goes farther in enforcing net neutrality standards than the rules repealed by the FCC, Pi this week tried to push back against the idea, saying a number of state-level internet laws would create market uncertainty according to CNET. When you're talking about the choice for a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur to set up shop in the United States where they have to get permission from the federal government or from the state of California, San Francisco, or some other jurisdiction, or whether they should set up shop in country B where there's uniform, well-established set of regulations that are consistent, I worry that the proposition value for country B will become stronger over time, Pai said, according to the news outlet. Here's the bottom line. That's your fault, Ajit Pai. The reason why there's inconsistency across states is because of what you did. You repealed net neutrality. Unilaterally, you decided to do this. So when you passed that preemption provision with your net neutrality repeal, you should have known that this was a possibility, right? I mean, if I were him, I'd be happy that my repeal was upheld by a court. 
But the fact that he's going out of his way to complain is ridiculous. And if you listen to any of his interviews, it's even more infuriating because he's saying, look, I was proven right. There were all of these alarmists that were saying that, you know, the internet as we know it would be gone, that freedom on the internet would go away. But now you can see people on Twitter, they're still expressing their opinions. I mean, this is so incredibly disingenuous. Not only does that disregard the throttling that has taken place, firefighters in California is one example, but he's not mentioning that this was literally just upheld in the court of law, right? So this is such a disingenuous, bad faith actor, and it's so frustrating that he got what he wanted. But, you know, the good news is that now, since California is going further than the FCC and, you know, a domino effect could be in play where other states could replicate that same law, well, he could lose even worse because he was he was too greedy. He was he wanted to do what the ISPs wanted so badly that now there's a nationwide movement, not just for laws as solid, as broad and robust as California, but more and more people are aware of the utility in fighting for public municipal broadband. So he catalyzed a nationwide movement for better internet in this country. But I mean, this is what happens when you just, you don't keep corrupt elitist people who are in power in check. He should have been impeached. He should not be in that position of power. And I really hope that if we get a democratic administration, they look into him, they investigate him, because this is completely unacceptable, right? The fact that he repealed net neutrality amid an entire scandal in and of itself is an issue. But the fact that he's going out of his way to complain when he just won, I mean, it shows how insufferable this individual is. Hello, everyone. I am here with Jen Perlman running in Florida's 23rd congressional district against someone you all may be familiar with. Her name is Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and she is the newest challenger to take on Congresswoman Schultz. And she's here to talk about her campaign and how she will once and for all defeat Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's a pleasure. You know, I, I really am trying to find people from all across the country who are running for Congress. And a lot of times it's really difficult to get the name out there. And there is less, you know, of a sense of urgency because they're running against someone with little to no name recognition. But if you're progressive, if you are a democratic socialist, you know about your opponent, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, so tell us why you decided to run, because we know that you're going up against the behemoth, someone who is raising a lot of money from special interests. So what made you want to take on um, Debbie? Because this really is a David versus Goliath situation. Uh, you know, th she has been my congresswoman for 15 years. So this is nothing about how she t gets her money and what she does is new to us in this district. Most people know her from 2016, from the DNC and the cheating of Bernie and that. But really, she has been corrupt as long as I, I, I can remember. But the timing of this really works out in, in a few ways. One, I've recently reactivated my law license because I've had more time on my hands. My oldest just left for college. And so I'm able to actually put some more time into doing stuff in a local level than I was over the past few years. But my issues with her go back as far as I can remember. I mean, this is nothing new. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because my first introduction to her was in 2016 with the DNC yeah. shenanigans and when she had to infamously resign. So why, in terms of just being a representative, was she not adequate even before we knew about anything from 2016, in your view? 
Um, it's actually, it's really simple. It's where she gets her money from. I personally do not support anybody who takes corporate donations or special interest has control by special interest. And her donors include big sugar, next era energy, which is Florida power and light payday lenders, for-profit prisons, the alcohol industry, and, and I'm, I'm probably, oh, uh, private insurance companies. There's just this long list of sources of money that give such an appearance of impropriety to her and into the choices that she makes. And for we have a blue-green algae problem that I don't know if you're familiar with down here, that it comes from the toxic water that is the overflow of industrial agriculture, primarily big sugar in the middle of the state, and the nitrates flow into the system and it creates this blooming blue-green algae problem that's toxic. It kills the manatees, it kills the fish, and the people that live on the water when this is blooming have to actually cover their faces with gas masks because of the toxic algae. Well, she takes big sugar money. That's one of her biggest donors. She's been giving sugar subsidies as far as I can remember, and this kind of toxic overflow is pretty typical here. So, you know, I, I just I don't trust somebody who's on their payroll. Yeah. And I don't I don't blame you. And someone who's lived there who has to deal with these consequences. You know, this is more than just about the 2016 election. This is more than just getting out one additional corporate Democrat. This is about how it really impacts your life in a concrete way. So it's really nice to see you step up and challenge her. But I don't want this to be entirely about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because you as a candidate individually, if we remove her from the equation, uh, I looked at your platform. I absolutely am so impressed. So tell us about yourself personally and also, you know, why you decided to run for Congress. Um, I was born in this district, actually. I'm a second generation native Floridian, which for someone my age is extremely rare. Um, most people here are transplants. So I'm what people would refer to as a townie. I've been here forever. So I, I actually remember there being wild flamingos. So, you know, there's it's a lot different now, the landscape. I went to school for journalism and eventually ended up doing advertising and media relations where I was at the State Chamber of Commerce in Indiana doing their media relations. And I really loved the policy aspect of what the lobbyists were working on. Not so much those particular Chamber of Commerce policy positions, but just the whole concept of working at the State House. And I loved doing the press conferences at the governor's office. And it was just a really fun experience to see that the things that we were doing were actually affecting policy. So that it was just really a really good experience. And that's when I decided to go to law school. So I actually went to law school planning on lobbying for nonprofit. I always figured that the bad guys had lobbyists, that the good guys needed lobbyists. And that was my original plan. And then one thing leads to the next thing. And I ended up doing criminal law and, and just different things. But policy has always been something that I was interested in from the beginning of when I even decided to go to law school. So this general concept of injustice is just something that sort of I feel all the time, whether it's economic injustice, injustice with the criminal justice system, all of it, this, this level of elitism and entitlement that seems to have taken over our country is just, quite honestly, it's disgusting to me. So I'm in a position where I have a life that I'm privileged and, and able to be able to step up and do this. I mean, how many people can give up their job who have to work to be able to spend eight months raising money to run for a position that should be a term of public service and not a career. 
And, you know, so it's a privilege to be able to do it. So I say it's my privilege to lend my privilege. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, it's just, I think I've reached the maximum level of acceptance of elitism in this country. I absolutely see it as well. And it makes me feel like I'm unwelcome. Like it makes people who aren't in that club, which is very small, feel as if they are the other, like they're not, they're, they're not, um, you know, even needed for votes anymore. Because if you have your donors, you know, special interests, big sugar, you know, payday lenders who are predatory, then they just feel like they don't need to represent their constituents. And I, I like that so many people, members of brand new Congress, Justice Democrats are stepping up and they're saying, you know what, no, working people, we are the backbone of this country and we're no longer going to allow this corporate complicity and people who are in power just uh, not represent us adequately uh, from local issues to national issues. And I saw one of your tweets that was just it was so incredible because I'm always thinking about these things. And I love that you tied this to a really um, a concrete thing that affects normal Americans. So for those who don't know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz just came out and announced that she uh, she has uh, breast cancer, I believe. And she kind of kept that battle private. And the way that you responded to this was, of course, you know, you you were sympathetic towards that struggle. But you reminded her that some people, they don't have the access to healthcare at all. And that's something that Debbie Wasserman Schultz doesn't support. So we understand that that healthcare struggle and, you know, dealing with cancer, that's huge. Like I, any person who goes through that, it's, it's horrific, right? And I have family members and friends who are all affected by that. But, you know, dealing with health in and of itself is an issue. You shouldn't also have to deal with the struggle of finding out, is my insurance company going to cover this? Uh, can I even find insurance? And so you you tied that back to a real world issue. And on your website, you are so clear, and I love this. You talk about Medicare for all, and you say very clearly, single payer. Uh, no more copays, no more deductibles, no more premiums. So why is this issue so important to you? And what, what other issues would you bring to the table as, you know, the new representative of District 23 in Florida? Um, I actually think that single payer healthcare will be the biggest, most comprehensive change in people's lives in my lifetime. I, I think that it is bigger than anybody can even really imagine. And I, and this concept of trickle up economics, you know, when people aren't having the stress between their food and their insulin or worrying about how they're going to pay for their kids asthma medication, well, maybe they can get a new car. Maybe they can take that extra trip this year, or maybe they can do some extra Christmas shopping. And I, 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 it's like trickle up economics. And so to me, it isn't even just the factor of the healthcare, which to me is a human right, that's a, you know, it's a moral issue that we need to decide as a country, but economically, I think it'll have a much greater impact than people even realize in addition to just obviously cutting down on our ridiculous healthcare costs. So to me, it, that's just a massive issue, but I've said my top three would be Medicare for all, I do support Green New Deal, um, but more specifically, very climate crisis oriented action. I mean, Green New Deal is also economic justice. I mean, it's, it's very broad. And so, yes, I support the Green New Deal, but very more specifically climate crisis and also criminal justice reform. And that's just very personal to me. Um, decriminalizing marijuana is tip of the iceberg. I mean, you, you know. We need to be commuting sentences left and right uh, for people that are sitting in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. So, you know, I, I see drugs as a healthcare issue, not a criminal issue. There, there's just so many fundamental differences between how I see things and how things are actually currently being legislated. So it, it's so broad. I mean, my opponent still says marijuana is a gateway drug. Oh, my so, God. So, you know. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we have an opioid crisis that is way bigger than, than people realize. Marijuana is just not even close to part of the problem. <laughs> it's just, it's just not. So, you know, I just, we need a complete paradigm shift in how we deal with not just drugs, but criminal justice in general. And um, obviously racial disparity is a huge problem with that too. That's really remarkable. It's almost like there's different cultures in the United States because I'm on the opposite side, you know, of the country. I'm in Oregon and I could walk into a store and legally purchase <laughs> purchase weed. Um, I know. But then you have a representative who is saying it's a gateway drug. It's just, it's remarkable. I and I want you to kind of talk a little bit more about criminal justice because this is something that really isn't talked about enough. And someone with your background, I think that you have so much credibility here and so much insight. Can you talk about what real criminal justice reform would look like? Wow. I, it's a huge so topic. Many, it's huge. It's huge. The, the issue is that a majority of the stuff that would be dealt with with that are state level issues. For right. example, everything having to do with marijuana legalization really is a state issue. That's why I always say decriminalization from a federal perspective, meaning marijuana needs to be declassified as a, as a schedule one drug and, you know, all any sort of um, commutations that can happen at the federal level need to happen. But we're talking about everything from policing all the way up until post-conviction and sentencing reform. The way that people are treated based on skin color starts, I mean, other than from school year age, it's in the criminal justice system from the minute of arrest until the minute you are, are out, of, out of jail and potentially trying to get your voting rights reinstated, which is now a big issue here as well. So, I mean, there are so many problems with it that it's just remarkable i i mean it's huge yeah it, it's such a multi-dimensional issue as well and i think that's a, that's such a an important point about the state level because like this is really an incredibly important local issue that i think state representatives and representatives in congress really need to address like the way that uh communities of color are over policed this leads to yes. additional fines and increased poverty like there's so many issues and i just feel like people in congress they've become so detached many of them have been there for decades and then you just even if you go into congress with good intentions they kind of put themselves in a bubble in dc like i like to call it the elitist bubble and then they don't leave it and then they don't allow anything to penetrate that bubble so it's really nice to see candidates like yourself really shake up that system and let them know that hey we're your constituents you are not adequately addressing our needs in fact you're way out of touch and we want you to do better and since you have proven that you're not going to do better we're going to take the matter into our own hands and uh, challenge you ourselves. So I want to talk a little bit about the dynamics of your campaign. This is difficult. As I mentioned, you know, you're going up against someone who is very well funded, who is loved by the Democratic Party establishment. So what do you think it would require to make you competitive and have you defeat her? I know that you have a broad, robust um, grassroots campaign, but um, what can we do in terms of helping you? Because I know that as someone in Oregon, I also feel as if I almost have like a vested interest in this district because I followed it for so long. Um, what can yeah. we do to help you? Um, well, obviously we need money. I mean, we, we need, and we're all small dollar donations. I mean, look, there will be some occasional people that want to max out and that, you know, want to write me a check for $2,800 and that's fine. You know, we'll take it. But really, I have this dream of this concept going viral that all of, I would love to get all of Bernie's volunteers to donate a dollar a month to unseat the person who cheated Bernie. 
And I have this, this idea in my head of this like big group effort, almost like this poetic justice, if you will. Um, and I really, I couldn't imagine a single Bernie volunteer that would not be willing to donate a dollar a month to do this. So it's just a matter of getting that out there. Um, in general, we're hoping for $23 a month monthly donations for District 23. And people can donate at gen2020.com. And can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at genfl23. But we we need people to spread the word, and we need we need monthly donors to, to keep this going. It's unfortunate that we have to have uh, close to two years of campaigns in this country. But you know, I support publicly financed elections, and I'd be happy with a three month election cycle. The, the the waste and the affluence that's required to do this is obscene, and this is why why regular people cannot participate in, in governance. And all, that's like my personal little, not I wouldn't say vendetta, but to get publicly financed elections so that regular people can actually run for office, that would be a whole game changer. Oh, it would it would totally be a game changer because you shouldn't have to have money to win elections, but that's just the reality of the system. So I always try to tell people that when you're donating to these candidates, even if they're not in your district, think of this as kind of like an investment, right? Like you put down a dollar or five dollars or twenty dollars, and when they get elected, they will be implementing policies that help you. And I always love to use this example of Ilhan Omar. She wants to cancel student loan debt. She introduced the bill in the House of Representatives. That would have a really concrete impact on my life and i'm not in her district she's not my representative so this really is you know a national movement and i i love the way that you frame that like if we got all the bernie volunteers to donate to you have like poetic justice you know um that would be phenomenal like I, I love that because this really is like this is a movement we all stick together this is about solidarity and you know it's not only about that it's about getting the policies that's why we are all rallying around this movement to you know pass these broad policy reforms medicare for all criminal justice reform you know so uh, i i love that you said that that really um i think that's going to resonate with a lot of people it, it definitely resonated with me so uh thank you so much for coming on the program jen it's been an absolute pleasure we for thank sure you. We'll be following this race very closely. I know that all of my viewers now are going to be interested because, you know, we can't just let people in power get away with one, not representing people and two, directly cheating people, robbing <laughs> them of democracy. It's just so oh, unfair, yeah. you know, so there, there has to be accountability for that. And accountability will hopefully come in the form of poetic justice and democracy and just beating Debbie Wasserman Schultz finally. <laughs> I mean, I generally, I, I tell people I find her to be an insubordinate employee yes. and people need to understand that these are our employees. So why they're on pedestals and why they give themselves raises and we just sort of are happy fighting for scraps of what they I, like. It's almost like we have battered spouse syndrome. Yes. I, I don't, we just don't. I don't understand. If I told anybody that you could have an employee that they're going to do whatever they want, they're going to take money from other people, they're not going to do what you ask them to do, and they're going to give themselves a raise, it just sounds crazy, you know? <laughs> so, and yet, this is how we live. So, I realize that it isn't just about the corporate money. I mean, that's huge. But we have to elect people that don't want this as a career. This yes. is not a career, it is a term of service. You know, for me, this is nothing I ever thought of. Uh, wanting to do. I've always liked the idea of creating policy. Um, but this, this was never anything that I, that I sought out doing. I mean, my, my dream life is living in the mountains in Asheville in some sort of artist co-op and having like goats and bees, you know? So, <laughs> so this is, 
this is service is how I mean, that's how I see it. And that mentality is so different because like we we've been We've been, I guess, uh, groomed as since we were children to think that, you know, if you want to be a politician, if you want to be a president, you just start by being mayor, then you run for the state legislature, then maybe you yes. know federal office. But that's not really how democracy is supposed to work. It's supposed to be non-elitist people, working people. And I I'm so glad that you brought that up. These are subordinate employees. Like our tax dollars are going to their checks. Like they answer yeah. to us. So we can fire them if we don't like them. And I, I think that people just need to realize the tremendous amount of power that we have, even if it doesn't feel like it at this point in time, we do have power. We still are in control. It just takes people like you saying, hey, you are in charge. Like, you know, activate I mean, that look, power. They've made it hard. They've made it hard. They've insulated themselves in gerrymandered district. With, we have a closed primary here and they've made it so that the seats are very safe. So, you know, it's we've taken our eye off the ball long enough that we've sort of allowed them to become so insulated and safe in their seats. So it almost seems like harder to unravel it. But people are getting through and it is happening. And, and I actually think that Trump is a huge part of why more people are paying attention. And for that, I am thankful. And, you know, as much as they'd like to blame the whole world's evil on him, it, it, people are paying attention that were never paying attention before. So I and to me, that's helpful. So I, I actually am appreciative of that. Yeah, uh, no, I totally agree with that because it's like for for us to get someone like Donald Trump elected into office, that really requires all of us to really be introspective and take a hard look at our democracy. Like, why was it so bad that this clown was elected? Yes. Like, it's getting people to really think. And I think that that's, you know, one of the good things, I guess, of Donald Trump, if we could take anything, you know, out of it. I think it's so important because people kind of just went to sleep during the Obama years. Like, we just felt like... It's okay. Clinton yeah. and Obama. Clinton, Clinton and Obama. And Obama. Right. We had two opportunities after two conservative presidencies to change the dynamic and to actually make things work better for working people. And instead, we put in neoliberal policies that just made it worse. And just with this illusion of this democratic kind of um, backing that really is no different. It's the same thing. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all the same. And it's just corporatism. It's just pure corporatism. Yeah, it feels like we have one party split into two different factions, one who's far right and extremist, the other who's just, you know, they're socially liberal to an extent, but by and large, they're corporatists. Like we live yeah. essentially in an oligarchy. Like I always like to cite a 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page, where they looked at policy outcomes for a set of issues, and they found that average voters have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, yeah. whereas elites, special interests, they actually have a significant impact. And we can't allow that to happen. Like we have to be able to recognize that we are in a time of crisis and we need to respond to that accordingly and that's why um once again i'm so thankful that people like you are running so before we go one last time tell us your twitter and your website okay so our website is gen2020.com that's gen with one n and we're also at gen2020 on facebook our twitter and instagram are genfl23 for florida's 23rd district and we need help i mean there's no doubt about it and if people could go onto our website and even sign up as a volunteer to help with social media like there's there's several different choices but the more people that we have following us, the more attention we get, the more money comes in. So it all helps. It's just, it's really helpful to have support. It's like a snowball effect, essentially. Once you get that, um, that momentum, you know, there's no stopping you. So Jen Perlman running in Florida's 23rd Congressional District against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Help her out if you want poetic justice for Bernie <laughs> Sanders. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's it. I don't have anything else left that I want to talk about. I've got everything off my chest and everything off of my heart. Now, um, we'll take a break. <laughs> so as usual, I'm not going to end the show before thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members. And I want to send a special shout out to all of our iTunes and SoundCloud listeners. Thank you all so much. Your sh- your support is truly, it, it just, it's so heartwarming. It means so much. We just hit a pretty, I think, significant milestone. We crossed... 250,000 YouTube subscribers. That's a quarter of a million. That is insane. That's huge. So uh, thank you all so much. I look forward to, uh, you know, getting to the 500,000 mark. I think that's the next really huge milestone. And we're on our way to a million. It may take a million years based on YouTube's changes to their algorithm. But nonetheless, we're still, we're moving forward. We'll put it that way. So thank you all so much for, uh, staying with us um but yeah i'm just rambling so i'm gonna stop talking (laughs) i'll see you all next week my name is mike figueredo this is the humanist report take care everyone